Hello, Rachel here with a brief, I guess a public service announcement and errata to explain something about the episode that you are about to hear. And if you listen to all of these episodes where we discuss the play scene by scene, you're going to hear this message multiple times. And I apologize for that to. This important information is that there is a method that my co-hosts and I discuss called Original Practice Shakespeare that we have since learned was not original practice to Shakespeare at all. There is zero evidence to suggest that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse their plays. There is zero evidence to suggest that they always faced the audience at all times. In fact, we know that to be patently false. So I go into this in more depth in the episode of the podcast under that title about what is original practice and Shakespeare and early modern rehearsal and play production methods. I have sent after him. He says he'll come. How shall I feast him? What bestow of him? For youth is bought more oft than begged or borrowed. I speak too loud. There is Malvolio. He is sad and civil, and suits well for a servant with my fortunes. Where is Malvolio? He's coming, madam, but in very strange manner. He is sure possessed, madam. Why, what's the matter? Does he rave? No, madam. He does nothing but smile. Your ladyship were best to have some guard about you if he come. For sure, the man is tainted in wits. Go call him hither. I am as mad as he, if sad and merry madness equal be. How now, Malvolio? Sweet lady! Ho-ho! Smilest thou? I sent for thee upon a sad occasion. Sad, lady? I could be sad. This does make some obstruction in the blood, this cross-gartering, but what of that? If it please the eye of one, it is, with me as the very true sonnet is, please one and please all. Why, how dost thou, man? What is the matter with thee? Not black in my mind, though yellow in my legs. It did come to his hand, and commands shall be executed. I think we do know the sweet Roman hand. Wilt thou go to bed, Malvolio? To bed, ay, sweetheart, and I'll come to thee. God comfort thee. Why dost thou smile so and kiss thy hand so oft? How do you, Malvolio? At your request, yes, nightingales answer dogs. Why appear you with this ridiculous boldness before my lady? Be not afraid of greatness. Twas well writ. What meanest thou by that, Malvolio? Some are born great. <laughs> some achieve greatness. What sayest thou? And some have greatness thrust upon them. Heaven restore thee. Remember who commended thy yellow stockings. Thy yellow stockings. <laughs> and wished to see thee cross-gartered. Cross-gartered? Go to, thou art made, if thou desirest to be so. Am I made? If not, let me see thee a servant still. Why, this is very midsummer madness. Uh, madam, uh, the young gentleman of Count Orsino's is returned. I could hardly entreat him back. He attends your ladyship's pleasure. I'll come to him. 
Good Maria, let this fellow be looked to. Where's my cousin Toby? Let some of my people have a special care of him. I would not have him miscarry for the half of my dowry. Oh-ho! Do you come near me now? No worse man than Sir Toby to look to me. This concurs directly with the letter. She sends him on purpose that I may appear stubborn to him. For she incites me to that in the letter. Cast thy humble sloth, says she. Be opposite with a kinsman, surly with the servants. Let thy tongue tang with arguments of state. Put thyself into a trick of singularity, and consequently sets down the manner how as a sad face, a reverend carriage, a slow tongue, in the habit of some sir of note, and so forth. I have limed her, but it is Jove's doing, and Jove make me thankful. And when she went away now, let this fellow be looked to. Fellow, not Malvolio, nor after my degree, but fellow. Why, everything adheres together that no dram of a scruple, no scruple of a scruple, no obstacle, no incredulous or unsafe circumstance. What can be said? Nothing that can be can come between me and the full prospect of my hopes. Well, Jove, not I, is the doer of this, and he is to be thanked. Which way is he? In the name of sanctity, if all the devils of hell be drawn in little and legion, himself possesses him, yet I'll speak to him. Here he is, here he is. How's it with you, sir? How is it with you, ma'am? Go off. I discard you. Let me enjoy my private. Go. Off. No, how hollow the fiend speaks within him. Did not I tell you? Sir Toby, my lady prays you to have a care of him. Aha! Does she so? Go to, go to. Peace, peace. We must deal gently with him. Let me alone. How do you, Malvolio? How is it with you? What man defy the devil? Consider he's an enemy to mankind. Do you know what you say? Law, you, as you speak ill of the devil, how he takes it at heart. Pray God, he be not bewitched. Carry his water to the wise woman. Mary, and it shall be done tomorrow. If I live, my lady would not lose him for more than I'll say. How now, mistress? Oh, Lord. Prithee, hold thy peace. This is not the way. Do you not see you move him? Let me alone with him. No way but gently. Gently, gently. The fiend is rough and will not be roughly used. Why, how now, my barcock? How to stout, Chuck? Sir! Why, Beatty, come with me. What man tis not for gravity to play at cherry pit with Satan? Hang him, foul collier. Get him to say his prayers, good Sir Toby. Get him to pray. My prayers, minx? No, I warrant you, he will not hear of godliness. Go hang yourselves all. You are idle, shallow things. 
I am not of your element. You shall know more hereafter. <laughs> Is it possible? If this were played upon a stage now, I could condemn it as an improbable fiction. His very genius has taken the infection of the device, man. Nay, pursue him now, lest the device take air and taint. Why, we shall make him mad indeed. The house will be quieter. <laughs> Come, we'll have him in a dark room and bound. My niece uh, is already in belief that he's mad. We may carry it thus, for our pleasure and his penance, till our very pastime, tired out of breath, prompt us to have mercy on him, at which time we will bring the device to the bar and crown thee for a finder of madmen. But see, but see! More matter for a May morning. Here's the challenge. Read it. I warrant there's vinegar and pepper in it. Isn't so saucy. I ist, I warrant him. Do but read. Give me. Youth, uh, um, whatever thou art, thou art a scurvy fellow. Good and valiant. Wonder not, nor admire not in thy mind. Why I do call thee so, for I will show thee no reason for it. A good note that keeps thee from the blow of the law. Mm -hmm. Thou comest to the Lady Olivia in my sight and uses thee kindly. And thou liest in thy throat. This is not the matter I challenge thee for. Very brief, and to exceedingly good sense, less. I will waylay thee going home, where if it be thy chance to kill me. Good. Thou killest me like a rogue and a villain. Still you keep, oh, the windy side of the law. Good. Fare thee well, and God have mercy upon one of our souls. Uh, he may have mercy upon mine, but my hope is better, and so look to thyself, <laughs> thy uh, friend, and thou uh, usest him in thy sworn enemy, Andrew Aguecheek. If this letter move him not, his legs cannot. I'll give it to him. You may have very fit occasion for it. He is now in some commerce with my lady, and will by and by depart. Go, Sir Andrew. Mm. Scout me for him at the corner of the, the orchard, like a bombay. As soon as ever thou seest him, draw! And as thou drawest, swear horrible, for it comes to pass oft that a terrible oath with a, a swaggering accent, sharply twanged off, gives manhood more approbation than ever proof itself would have earned him away. Nay, let me alone for swearing. Now will not I deliver his letter, for the behavior of the young gentleman groups him out to be a good capacity uh, in breeding. His employment between his Lord and my niece confirms no less. Therefore, this letter, being so <laughs> excellently ignorant, will breed no terror in the youth. He will find it comes from Clodpole. Uh. But, sir, I will deliver his tongue uh, by word of mouth, set upon Aguecheek a notable report of valor, and drive the gentleman, as I know his youth will after receive it, into a most hideous opinion of his rage, skill, fury, and impetuosity. This is so frightened that they will kill one another by the look like cockatrices. 
Here he comes with your niece. Give them way till he take leave and presently after him. I will meditate the while upon some uh, horrid message for a challenge. I have said too much unto a heart of stone, and laid mine honor too uncherry out. There's something in me that reproves my fault, but such a headstrong, potent fault it is, that it but mocks reproof. But the same behavior that your passion bears goes on my master's grief. Here, wear this jewel for me. Tis my picture. Refuse it not, it hath no tongue to vex you. And I beseech you, come again tomorrow. What shall you ask of me that I'll deny, that honor saves may upon asking give? Nothing but this, your true love for my master. How with mine honor may I give him that which I have given to you? I will acquit you. Well, come again tomorrow. Fare thee well. A fiend like thee might bear my soul to hell. Gentlemen, God save thee. And you, sir. That defense thou hast, betake thee to it. Of what nature the wrongs are thou hast done him, I know not, but thy interceptor, full of despite, bloody as the hunter, attends thee at the orchard end. Nature, the wrongs are thou hast done him, I know not, but thy interceptor, full of despite, bloody as dismount thy tuck. Be yar in thy preparation, for thy assailant is quick, skillful, and deadly. You mistake, sir. I am sure no man hath any quarrel to me. My remembrance is very free and clear from any image of offense done to any man. You'll find it otherwise, I assure you. Therefore, if you hold your life at any price, betake you to your guard, for your opposite hath in him what youth, strength, skill, and wrath can furnish man withal. I pray you, sir, what is he? He is knight, dubbed with unhatched rapier and on carpet consideration, but he is a devil in private brawl. Souls and bodies hath he divorced three, and his incensement at this moment is so implacable that satisfaction can be none but by pangs of death and sepulchre. Hobnob is his word. Give it a take it. I will return again into the house and desire some conduct of the lady. I am no fighter. I have heard of some kind of men that put quarrels purposely on others to taste their valor. Belike this is a man of that quirk? Sir, no. His indignation derives itself out of a very competent injury. Therefore, get you on and give him his desire. Back you shall not to the house unless you undertake that with me, which with as much safety you might answer him. Therefore, oh, on or strip your sword, stark, naked, for metal you must, that's certain, or forswear to wear iron about you. This is as uncivil as strange. I beseech you, do me this courteous office as to know of the knight what my offense to him is. It is something of my negligence, nothing of my purpose. I will do so. Signor Fabian, stay you by this gentleman till my return. Pray you, sir, do you know of this matter? I know the knight is incensed against you, even to a mortal arbitrament, but nothing of the circumstance more. I beseech you, what manner of man is he? 
nothing of that wonderful promise to read him by his form, as you are like to find him in the proof of his valor. He is indeed, sir, the most skillful, bloody, and fatal opposite that you could possibly have found in any part of Illyria. Will you walk towards him? I will make your peace with him if I can. I shall be much bound to you for it. I am one that had rather go with Sir Priest than Sir Knight. I care not who knows so much of my mettle. Why, man, he is a very devil. I have not seen such a farrago. I had a pass with him, rapier, scabbard, and all, and he gives me the stuck in with such a mortal motion that it is inevitable. And on the answer, he pays you as surely as your feet hit the ground they step on. They say he is Vincer to the Sophie. Box on it, I'll not meddle with him. Aye, but he will not now be pacified. Fabian can scarce hold him yonder. Plague on it. And I thought he had been valiant and so cunning in fence. I'll have seen him damned ere I'll have challenged him. Let him let the matter slip. And I'll give him my horse, Grey Capulet. I'll make the motion. Stand here. Make a good show on it. And without the perdition of souls. Mary, I'll ride your horse as well as I ride you. I have his horse to take up the quarrel. I've persuaded him the youth's a devil. He's as horribly conceited of him, and pants and looks pale as if a bear were at his heels. There's no remedy, sir. He will fight with you for oath's sake, Mary. He hath better bethought him of his quarrel, and he finds that now scarce to be worth talking of, therefore draw for the supportance of his vow. He protests he will not hurt you. Pray God defend me. A little thing would make me tell them how much I lack of a man. Give ground if you see him furious. Come, Sir Andrew. There's no remedy. The gentleman will, for his honor's sake, have one bout with you. He cannot find the duello who avoid it. But he has promised me, as he is a gentleman and a soldier, he will not hurt you. Go on to it. Pray God he keep his oath. I do assure you, tis against my will. Put up your sword. If this young gentleman have done offense, I take the fault on me. If you offend him, I for him defy you. You, sir? Why, what are you? One, sir, that for his love does yet do more. When you have heard him brag to you, he will. Antonio, I arrest thee at the suit of Count Orsino. You do mistake me, sir. Uh, no, sir. No, Jot. I know your favor well, though now you have no sea cap on your head. Uh, take him away. He knows I know him well. I must obey. This comes with seeking you. But there's no remedy. I shall answer it. What will you do now my necessity makes me ask you for my purse? It grieves me. Much more for what I cannot do for you than what befalls myself. You stand amazed, but be of comfort. 
Come away, sir. I must entreat you of some of that money. What money, sir? For the fair kindness you've showed me here, and part being prompted by your present trouble, out of my lean and low ability, I'll lend you something. My having is not much. I'll make division of my present with you. Hold. There's half my coffer. Will you deny me now? Is it possible that my deserts to you can lack persuasion? Do not tempt my misery, lest that it make me so unsound a man as to upbraid you with those kindnesses that I have done for you. I know of none, nor know I you by voice or any feature. I hate ingratitude more in a man than lying, vainness, babbling, drunkenness, or any taint of vice whose strong corruption inhabits our frail blood. Yes, holy heavens themselves! Come, sir, I pray you go! Let me speak a little! This youth that you see here, I snatched one half out of the jaws of death, relieved him with such sanctity of love, and to his image which methought did promise most venerable one, did I devotion. What's that to us? The time goes by. Away! But oh, how vile and idle proves this god! Thou hast, Sebastian, done good feature shame. In nature, there's no blemish but the mind. None can be called deformity but the unkind. Virtue is beauty, but the beauty is evil. Our empty trunks overflourished by the devil. The man grows mad. Away with him. Come, come, sir. Lead me on. Methinks his words do from such passion fly, that he believes himself, so do not I. Prove true, imagination, oh, prove true, that I, dear brother, be now ta'en for you. Then, come here, baby, we'll whisper oh, the couplets or two of most sage saws. He named Sebastian, I, my brother, know. Yet living in my glass, even such and so, in favor was my brother, and he went, still in this fashion color ornament. For him I imitate, oh, if it prove, tempests are kind and salt waves fresh in love. A very dishonest paltry boy, and more a coward than a hare. His dishonesty appears in leaving his friend here in necessity and denying him, and for his cowardship, ask Fabian. A coward, a most devout coward, religious in it. Slid, haul after him again, and beat him. Do, cuff him soundly, but never draw thy sword. And I do not. Come, let's see the event. I dare lay any money, will be nothing yet. everyone so we just finished listening to act three scene four and today i have with me bridget riley beauchamp john bean and cha ramos and we are going to go over what is surely one of the most entertaining action-packed scenes in the whole play that i think technically could have probably been broken down into three scenes but <laughs> <laughs> it's always uh, I always found it a challenge um, just rehearsing and scheduling this one scene it's almost a whole play in and of itself and so 
I'm good. Maybe he was trying to keep him, you know, like, don't go for intermission. You know, he was like <laughs> yeah. trying to keep him in the, you know, <laughs> don't leave the building. I, yeah, that could be so that they come back and it's all, uh, all the fun stuff happens. Hmm. So I'll do my quick uh, rundown, but I, I know I'll miss some stuff in the in the short summary, but I'm sure we will go into uh, satisfying detail throughout the rest mm -hmm. of it. So uh, at the beginning of the scene, Olivia is uh, saying that uh, oh, bah, 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 bah. Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the scene, Olivia is looking for Malvolio. Uh, Mariah is saying uh, he's coming, madam, but in very strange manner, kind of trying to let uh, Olivia know, maybe even to sort of seed the idea that Malvolio is, in fact, insane. And uh, Mariah is very thorough. She is nothing if not thorough. And so she is kind of letting Olivia know that she feels that Malvolio may be possessed. And uh, he comes in <laughs> just as strange as uh, Mariah uh, described, if not stranger. And then uh, Mariah comes back with Toby and Fabian because she wants them to be able to see the fun. And uh, they basically sit around and uh, tease Malvolio, uh, talk about him not being godly enough and they're they're saying he's possessed and demonic possession was considered contagious and so that's why people were put in quarantine uh malvolio true to form is really just thinking that everybody's thinking he's wonderful and that's they're just jealous basically that's why they're saying these things so he doesn't take them very seriously he goes off and goes away Olivia comes back with Viola Cesario. They have a little discussion where Olivia continues to humiliate herself out of love. Toby comes back in and Fabian, and then they start to talk about this upcoming duel, which Viola is clearly not enthusiastic about. Viola leaves. Toby Belch and Sir Andrew come back in and Toby and Fabian continue to kind of try to get Aggie Cheek riled up, who also really has no desire to fight anybody. Viola comes back in. And it, anyway, it, it, this is where it all breaks down in my head. And I think it's meant to. I think it's meant to be a confusing, disorienting scene that just basically shows that all the normal rules of polite society have been tossed out and anything could happen. Towards the end of the scene, Antonio comes in thinking that Viola is Sebastian, and then he has these very noble intentions of protecting and saving Sebastian, who clearly is alarmingly unable to handle a sword. And then he gets arrested, asks Viola, who he thinks is Sebastian, for his purse back. Viola's like, I don't know you. And Antonio is understandably heartbroken and distraught. He gets dragged off by the gendarmes. And then uh, at the end, Toby and Fabian are talking to Aguecheek, who says, well, 
you know, I clearly could have beat him. He's such a wimp, basically, which sets us up for a later scene where <laughs> where things didn't go as well as they had hoped because they don't encounter Viola the next time. They do encounter somebody else. So uh, hopefully if you're new to the play, that, that helped you somewhat make sense of this huge and very witty scene where every complication that can happen does happen. Yeah, it's like, it's like six of the 12 nights are, are right in this scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bridget, if I'm not mistaken, you're very fond of Olivia. I am. How did you, what did Olivia feel like to you in this scene? She's very, very, it's very much a sort of first crush. Almost, it's almost a teenager aspect to this woman who is in every other regard, very um, cautious with her emotions and with what she shows. So it's this sort of elation of of youth almost um and then the strangeness of malvolio um i mean you and i sort of have to continue to disagree about about malvolio which is fine but i never saw malvolio as a predator so this i mean she says i would not have him miscarried for half my dowry you know this is a this is a a person in her household who she holds some fondness for and she just can't really deal with whatever his stuff is because she's no longer thinking with her head. Mm -hmm. Um, And she does not want to be dragged back to the practicalities of household management. She wants to go meet her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, So she is very willing to turf this off to, um, to Toby. To take care and of. to our listeners, turf in this case does not mean uh, trans exclusionary radical feminist. <laughs> it, no. means, <laughs> it means. Wow, I am out of the loop. You are, honey. Um, <laughs> and that's why we love you. To turf off, as in T U R F, as it's almost a gardening term that means to to put a task off onto somebody else. Um, my feeling about Olivia and her trust of Malvolio in spite of how everybody else in the play sees him as an enemy. I've just, I've known a lot of people in that kind of situation that were so great at kissing ass to the person in charge and then treating everybody else badly. And unfortunately I've been in a position where I trusted a predator completely with my life, with everything. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that they were, not to be trustworthy. And so to me, um, this is Mariah desperately trying to show Olivia who Malvolio really is. Okay, so I read a really interesting article called The Religion of Twelfth Night by Maurice Hunt that goes into tremendous detail about the religious attitudes at the time, which are way more complex, of course, than we've been led to believe by uh, by watching various Queen Elizabeth I movies or Henry VIII. And in fact, there's one particular religion 
I think I, I probably brought it before called Societanism, which I can barely even say, which was the precursor to Unitarianism, that uh, that Marlowe and several of Shakespeare's friends were a proponent of. We don't know what Shakespeare thought about religion, but there were all these different ideas of what a new Protestant religion could look like after centuries of unquestioned Catholicism, basically. And this coming back to this article about the religion of Twelfth Night, she really breaks it down by why Malvolio is the villain of this piece and why it is understandable that Mariah and Festy and Toby do everything they can to basically expose Satan, who is in their midst. And I just, I found it fascinating. I'll find some quotes out of it. When we get to the gulling scene, which is what I can't wait for, um, <laughs> then I will pull some quotes from that to uh, to kind of back up a lot of these uh, things that I just say and, um, and don't bother to back up because, uh, you know, this is a podcast and, and not graduate school, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I cannot recommend enough. If you, if you're a listener and you're out there and you're comfortable reading these academic articles, there's gold mines out there. There's literally gold mines. People have been looking at this play forever because it's so much fun to look at. All right. So Mariah said he's coming, madam, but in a very strange manner. He is sure possessed, madam. So this is huge news to Olivia. Why? What's the matter? Does he rave? And then, uh, Cha, would you like to read Mariah's line there? Do you have oh, the sure. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so Mariah says, no, madam, he does nothing but smile. Your ladyship were best to have some guard about you if he come. For sure, the man is tainted in his wits. So Olivia doesn't call for the guard. She trusts uh, Malvolio. Hard to take it hard to process that when the person that you're relying on most in a situation apparently is possessed by demons and insane. And Olivia says, go call him hither. I am as mad as he, if sad and merry madness equal be. And this really brings back, Bridget, to your point of that combination of, of having responsibilities but being giddy, infatuated, all those emotions and feelings coming up that we think we've dealt with by the time we're adults, and then all of a sudden wake up one day and go, oh my God, I am just as clueless as I was when I was 14 and had a crush on that person who did not care about me. And so sure enough, Malvolio shows up and says, sweet lady, ho, ho, let's see. And, and uh, Olivia, smilest thou? All of this is pretty straightforward. We understand what's going on. John, would you like to read Malvolio's line? Sad lady. I could be sad. This does make some obstruction in the blood, this cross guarding. But what of that? If it please the eye of one, it is with me as the very sonnet is. Please one. And please all. <laughs> so now 
When you have participated in this or directed this, how literally did you do the cross-gartering? Literally. Yellow stockings, black ribbons. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. There's a, quite, for me, there's a gamut, but yeah, I'm oh, sorry, yeah. Chuck. No, just it's quite a, even today, you know, we don't know the sort of intricacies of how out of date. It's like someone wearing mm-hmm. like, you know, I almost imagine you could do like Malvolio walking in in like bell bottoms, right? Like mm-hmm. how sort of out of date mm-hmm. is. But even today, seeing a man in yellow stockings mm-hmm. with ribbons tied around them in like these cross, you know, mm-hmm. it's hilarious. It's mm-hmm. it's it's absurd. It looks absurd to us, I think, even today. Well, and that was, the th- you know, we always do modern dress, Um because it's August in Philadelphia and nobody's putting on a corset. Um, so we always do modern dress. So it was even, you know, the, our, the guy who played Malvolio came out in his, you know, black button down, his black pants and his sort of green vest and his pant legs rolled up to his knees with these yellow stockings with black ribbons. He looked <laughs> and he was just like, he's this bean, he's tall and skinny and he just looked ridiculous. <laughs> what about you, John? Uh, well, yeah, there's been a gamut for the, depending on, you know, on the production, uh, there's the, um, it's you typically, I think exactly what you guys are saying. It's a setup for such a comic moment, which I think also speaks to our ongoing debate over Malvolio um, in this forum, uh, not to be the Malvolio apologist, but um, <laughs> uh, the um, farcical and, and, and comic moment here that, that Mariah seems to be, intentionally setting up and um participating in but to to the point where she's setting up a gag as opposed to uh trying to defend her from demons over you know olivia from being taken over by demon energy or something you know what i mean mm-hmm. for me but mm-hmm. anyway back to the cross gartering um it's mm-hmm. if, if you, um you know in the park so we go all out you're looking for those big colors that's gonna that are gonna jump out it's this is one of those comic gold you know beginning from mariah's line uh he's he's been smiling weirdly you know before he even comes in it's just mm-hmm. we're just aching to see this you know mm-hmm. and then i i mean we did a an erotic uh shakespeare production and mm-hmm. that was slightly more elaborate costuming than that. <laughs> <laughs> or actually maybe less elaborate is what i should say uh, anyway similar effect slightly different effect but similar effect in that moment uh as well yeah. And it's weird because, you know, with like a lot of the erotic, uh, uh, not to beat this to death, but um, overtones. And there you go. In, in the play, <laughs> this moment can be um, capitalized on by directors for, you know, very fetishized dog relationship with the master thing and all this. I mean, they're like, there's productions with rubber and, and leashes and, you know, sure. uh, <laughs> you know, all this kind of bizarre out there stuff so but the the core remains that it's a shocking uh and hopefully slightly fun moments you know yeah yeah and i think i think it's interesting that and this is a lot to do with our own taboos about gender but men in stockings is still something people use to show that some that a male character has moved out of sort of a staid very establishment role into something that traverses those boundaries i'm thinking specifically of rocky horror picture show 
where Brad, after his experience with Rocky, uh, suddenly has on fishnet stockings. And like, what a powerful image that is. He doesn't have to say anything about how great the sex was with with Rocky or who is it? Frankenfurter. Yeah. Forgive me, people. How sex. I'm a big, big Rocky Horror Picture fan. Oh, gosh. Well, (laughs) not to brag, but actually to brag. I saw it at the Egyptian in Hollywood the week that it opened. And Mm. there was no toast throwing. There was none of this. There was just a lot of really happy shell-shocked Angelinos stumbling out of there going, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) The world is different now. Rocky Horror exists. Um, But that whole movie really plays on, I think, a lot of these similar tropes where you're taking somebody who's uptight and loosening them up for comic value, but also kind of for a more profound understanding of that we are not our clothing. You know, we can change our clothing and that change can reflect who we are inside. So when we put on an outfit, we're really putting on a uniform, we're taking on a role and everything else. And nowhere was that more true than early modern England where literally the clothes did make the human. Uh, You could not wear clothing that did not conform to your social standing and so on. And so this act of Malvolio to put on these clothes is such an act of trust, truly, that Olivia would not say those things if she did not mean them. And so this is the point at which I actually feel the most sorry for Malvolio, because clearly he would not have put this outfit on without being asked to by Olivia. Now, John, you and I watched a version of this done by Stratford. Um, It was from the before times and got broadcast (laughs) online, which was lovely of them to do. And... uh, We both had various uh, comments and critiques on the show, but one of the things that interested me was their choice of costuming, which was that the time period of the costumes moved around. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty anachronistic. It uh... was. It was very much out of time. And so, like, there were costumes from the 20s, costumes from the 1800s, costumes from the 1700s. And I was really wondering what they were going to do with Malvolio, but they went full on yellow stockings, cross garters, the whole thing. And I felt like the effect against all these other anachronistic kind of costumes was even more powerful. Fascinating. Because it was so... It was too perfect. Like it was just this gorgeous doublet and this incredible ruff and like the actual thing stands like out the, in that instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and just really brought home how how much of a statement that particular outfit is for Malvolio to be making. Because not only is he wearing something that's out of date certainly would have been in the early modern period it would it would have been like showing up in a, in a hundred year old outfit 
and they had much more rigid ideas of appropriate dress. Unlike us, whereas if someone showed up with a hundred year old outfit, we're like, Oh, cool. What's your Instagram? Um, you know, back then <laughs> they yeah. would have been, I think well, that's, that's the danger with these kinds of, um, you know, you know, Shakespeare in particular is really a guy where uh, auteurs and, and, you know, directors with quote vision, uh, just, you know, carte blanche it. Bah, 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 paint the stage however they feel you know move it from one area to the next this that and the other all you know we're only doing uh, uh the romans are going to be dwarves the uh french are going to be only uh you know i mean it's just the whole thing you can go as nuts as you want mm -hmm. but um it's kind of a hallmark i think of younger theater directors and mm. theater directors that don't spend as much time in Shakespeare. I know that I'm certainly hugely guilty in the past of inflicting a vision upon a script, possibly <laughs> to the uh -huh. detriment, to the detriment of the, uh, the delivery of the overall uh, effort. Um, <laughs> definitely guilty of that. Um, but the um, tendency as I think it gets into a more professional arena, as it's more studied, as you're working with people that are more, uh, you know, Shakespeareans, more bodolaters like ourselves, mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, that the that tends to go away. For me, this was, you know, the director was, it was his first time directing Shakespeare, directed mm -hmm. a couple of big sort of, I think, musical. He's, mm -hmm. he's mainly known for musicals on Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know anything besides those couple of bullet points um, mm -hmm. about him, but... I think he made that beginning thing, which is I'm just going to throw things that I think are cool at it and see mm -hmm. what sticks. Unfortunately, it dilutes the overall effect if you're not spending specific time on the text, which was my main problem with with this version of it. I it could have been dressed in anything or nothing, mm -hmm. as long as the intention with the text was delivered clearly and. Uh, with such an outstanding cast too, you've got Brian oh Denny, my gosh. Sir Toby, you know, you've got, mm -hmm. um, and I can't remember her name, but uh, Violet had also just played Rosalind. Mm -hmm. um, and in that production, I had some appreciation a little bit of, of her understanding of the language, but certainly here, uh, there was just such a, a, a dearth, uh, a chasm between intention and mm. any, you know, and just the words mm. just coming out. Olivia, at one point, the poor thing, I mean, there was music coming from everywhere, a three-piece band, there was, it was, constantly kind of this this circus atmosphere and she had to shout sometimes a 10-piece band i'm not even kidding the, the musicians yeah. were incredible yeah. and this this one in particular it being mm -hmm. illyria and this magical isle and we've got these you know kind of like it's not like we have to deal with the the rigid uh you know history book mm -hmm. lessons of agincourt here where you, right. know, you can see that is henry this is this you know right. are all of that kind of stuff. this one's always been a little more of a this in midsummer i think it uh get the catch-all you know it's let's make it about elvis <laughs> you know? well, well I, I, yeah go ahead Sean. know that if you know i'll put my dramaturg hat on for a uh -huh. second I think what what gets me sometimes is that because these plays are so old and they're done so often that people don't think of them as plays. They think of them as something else, as a vehicle mm -hmm. for something else. Mm -hmm. But that if you if you read the play as if it's never been done before, read the play as if it's a new playwright handing you, you know, their final draft and really dramaturgically look at what is this scene doing? What does it mean for this character? Right. And, and I think a lot as a movement director, how is Malvolio moving in this close? Mm -hmm. Right. If you're really thinking about those sort of dramaturgical bullet points, then you potentially can make it about Elvis 
because you know how to make it about Elvis and also about what's in the play. Mm. I think where I get sort of thrown off as an audience member is when I'm like, have you, have you read the play? <laughs> um, Cause I think yeah. concept can be really fun if you've read the play as a play and know what it's doing and then tweaking it toward whatever it is you're trying to say. But I, mm -hmm. I think where it gets lost is when people just see Shakespeare as a vehicle for their artistic concept. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, go, go devise a piece. Like if you really want to make something, go make it. If you want to do the play in a cool way, do it in a cool way, but you know, read the play. Mm -hmm. Yep. And a hard, yeah. hard, hard fought lesson for me. I'll tell you my, the first yeah. decade that I directed actors out there, anyone listening to this that I may have worked with in the past, trust me, <laughs> I understand what I've done now. <laughs> well, there's, there's a couple of midsummer sets of fairies. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I see the errors of my ways. <laughs> I'm sure they were fine. But like, and what honestly, are, what are unicycles and gas masks in this thing? What are we? What? <laughs> Again, can't say enough original practices. Four chairs yeah. on a stage. Yeah. Done. <laughs> well, as someone who did an orcish Romeo and Juliet where every single performer was an orc, you know, I can't cast any aspersions on on anything because. I believe that the only truly bad Shakespeare is Shakespeare that's not being done. And so I want to encourage our listeners to, yes. Bridget, do you know what an orc is? I do know what an orc is. Oh, okay, all right. I, just, I, I, I think <laughs> Shaw's people... young enough and I'm stupid enough, and, or, you know, hairy enough and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Most oh, God, am I supposed to be the sophisticated contingent oh. here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, We're in trouble. He's under some misapprehension that you're the grown-up here. Um... <laughs> well, can, can I ask something on that? Um, yeah. So was it, they, they're all orcs, mm -hmm. or it, was it the orcs were putting on the play? No, they they were orcs uh, because, well, and first of all, I think most Shakespeareans are familiar with Lord of the Rings, which is where we get most of go. our orcs from. <laughs> and so I'm fairly confident that anybody listening, nerdy enough to listen to this is, is probably well acquainted with orcs and possibly even uh, World of Warcraft, which is where I was kind of basing my orcish lore on. But I was trying to get high school students in and junior highs to come mm. in. And I was, you know, reading Romeo and Juliet again and playing World of Warcraft. And I was thinking the the characters in Romeo and Juliet are always sort of portrayed as very sophisticated, as very smooth, as very Shakespeare. So it's high culture, right? These people are bloodthirsty, you know, barbarians in in the Ooh. sense of the word that they are barbaric, that they are it's like a day or two and bam, everyone's eating dead. their meat raw, that they are stabbing yeah. each other in the streets. Yeah. And Orcish culture, particularly in World of Warcraft, is very non gendered. Uh, you know, so, so it was like orc capulets, orc monarchies, but it exactly. wasn't. I'm an orc actress and putting on no, it was orc capulets and orc monarchies. Acting like orcs. Um, I bet they ate that up. They, the actors loved it. <laughs> That's a hoot. 
It was it was super fun. We had a live heavy metal band that did a soundtrack kind of <laughs> under the whole thing. But I will tell you, I was questioning myself the whole time going, how self-indulgent am I? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you you chose orcs specifically for dramaturgical reasons, right? I like did. That, it's true. You, you had very Damn. specific, specific, very specific <laughs> dramaturgical reason, reasons for choosing orcs. So there you go. I did. And the nice. people who saw the play said, you know, I never really saw Romeo and Juliet that way before, but <laughs> I can really understand how much better how the English viewed the Italians at that point. It's a very uh, ethnographic stereotype. That whole play is all about what animals those Italians are and how they're ruled by their passions. And uh, they're all falling in love with each other and killing each other and, and doing stupid things. Those crazy Italians, unlike us, perfectly rational English. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of this production out of the Stratford Theater, which I am so thankful that they put online, I personally hate it when they move scene two and swap it with scene mm. one, where they start with the shipwreck instead mm -hmm. of Orsino in his palace. Because if you do not start that play with, if music be the food of love, play on then you don't know what the play is about. <laughs> it's not about shipwrecks. That's not what the play is about. And so that is my first like ding, ding, ding. You know, they're not, they haven't done their dramaturgy. They don't really understand what the play is about. And they're going for a big sensational opening rather than being honest to the text and truthful to the text. Other than that, I was frankly horrified at the racial stereotyping that actors of color were only put in positions of servants or uh, ne'er-do-wells like uh, Mariah and Antonio uh, were the only main speaking parts with actors of color. And at the end of the play, every single actor came out there in wedding garb except Mariah still had on her black serving gown. And I cannot tell you how angry that made me. Like but Toby didn't, uh, didn't, didn't go for it, huh? Uh, well, apparently he did, but she didn't get a, yeah. By go for it, you mean get her a nice dress? I, I don't or, know. Or marry her. Maybe you didn't marry her. No. I thought they were already married. They were Aren't married. they already married at the end of the play? Mm -hmm, because Fabian says for this he service, he hath yeah. married mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. And she comes out in that same old black serving gown that she's been wearing through the entire frigging play. Maybe she like got to the altar and she's like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I like that interpretation, John. I like that very much. Let me get my other dress back. I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I adored their festi because, you know, you have to play festi really badly for me not to adore. He was but talented. He was, he was, you, you can tell he'd have been He'd have been right in a in a fully realized production. Oh, he was he was very good, and he did have that electric guitar that I think I I mentioned at one point earlier in our discussions that I thought would be fun. Um, clearly, just an amazing performer, and he clearly knew the text. He clearly understood the 
text. I felt like he was a, a real bright light in that play. But I may be a tad biased because of my strong feelings about Festy. Right, and we're back, and I want to get into, uh, I think, what can be one of the very funniest moments in the play. And I want to switch it up a little, John. I'd like you to read Olivia, and I would like Bridget to read Malvolio. Um, what an honor. And uh, <laughs> let's see, Olivia... Um, I'd like you to start with, why, how dost thou, man? Why, how dost thou, man? I said for the opponent's haddock. Oh, why, how dost thou, man? What is the matter with thee? Not black in my mind, though yellow in my legs. It did come to his hands and commands shall be executed. I think we do know the sweet Roman hand. Wilt thou go to bed, Malvolio? <gasps> To bed, I, sweetheart, and I'll come to thee. Okay, we'll stop there. We'll stop there. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Did you guys ever see Mark Rylance do this role? Yes. Olivia? Yes. That's all I can say. I'm just so good. So no good. other guy. No other guy needs to do it. So good. <laughs> and and the the work he did with the walk and everything else, just phenomenal. But Cha, here we have what we think is a classic case of mixed signals here. Yes. <laughs> so I love I love this so much. And I think it's one of those things that like, you know, in the real world, in consent conversation, something we talk about a lot is if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Mm -hmm. Right. Which part of what that means is that as you're with a partner or whatever you're supposed to be listening to their signals. Like you're supposed to be picking up on things that are nonverbal as well as verbal. And that like, maybe is a no, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we apply that kind of consent thought to this moment <laughs> for comedic effect, it's like Malvolio is reading no signals. <laughs> he has decided what's happening He's chosen what's going down. And so what ends up happening is every signal Olivia gets gives him, he reads with his own book. And he's mm -hmm. not reading the book of her. He's reading the book of him. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I mean, it's just, it, it's like that, it's that constant, it's the sort of repetition of a joke that makes it funnier as it mm -hmm. continues, because it continues. <laughs> it continues to not read the signs that are so obvious to us. 
Mm-hmm. And so Olivia, rather than dealing directly with Malvolio's clear misunderstanding of her intention, goes on to God comfort thee, why dost thou smile so and kiss thy hand so oft? Yeah, so, what's that about? Everyone wants to know this. <laughs> what's with the kiss thy hand instead of her hand thy kiss yeah I'm, I can't he wait loves himself he is sick with self love mm. Olivia calls it at the very beginning mm. he is kissing himself because he loves himself and so he's doing this kind of mm. thing where he's kissing his hand and like something like if you would blow a kiss to someone that kind of a of a thing where he's you know he cannot kiss the object of his desire and so he's kissing who he really loves which you know is is himself i definitely in in my head i definitely see it as as specifically blowing kisses Mm -hmm. do you yeah Yeah. um but i i love the read that like as he's blowing kisses he's loving himself like he's (laughs) blowing the practice of this you know (laughs) And then, you know, you can have in this scene where Malvolio actually makes a grab for Olivia here. And how would you, Cha, let's say we have an an Olivia and a Malvolio, and they're not really comfortable. This is this is one of those classic stages, you know, like you got Petruchio with the knee, with Kate, like usually there's someone's thrown on something and there's some kind of amount or something that is almost attempted usually in most versions I've seen of this. Is that true for you guys? Mm-mm. No. You, you know, I, I Is it just me? I think so, John. I think Oh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna actually, get on out of here. You guys you guys are, you got this. I, I think what I have seen happen is um some of them you know, ignore like, it completely. Um and the the meaning is lost. Uh, some of them go too far, and Malvolio does things that should have gotten him arrested. So, uh, Cha is an intimacy coordinator. How? And let's say that you are the dramaturg, and you're saying this is the level of uh, physical intimacy that would have been crossing the line for Malvolio in this situation. And how can we enact this in a way where both actors are feeling? comfortable with it let's say they're ex-lovers just don't want to touch each other just hypothetically <laughs> well that's the thing that i find interesting you, you know in, and real it's something, life. in real life yeah <laughs> it's something with intimacy work that i think part of the reason why i encourage people to hire someone who is an intimacy professional when you do scenes like this is because part of our training is getting creative right is that the actor's boundaries are always valid exactly where they are that just Blanket is true. And so part of the work of an intimacy choreographer or an intimacy director is to say, okay, so here's where your boundaries are. How do we tell the story that we as a creative team want to tell within those boundaries? And so something, and you know, a lot of intimacy work does involve dramaturgy, right? And dramaturgs can be our greatest allies in the room. And so one of the things, the two things to me that are important about this scene is that I think there's some amount of a chase that can involve no touch at all. So there can be, you know, Olivia sort of backing away as Malvolio gets closer and closer. There can be running around some kind of set piece, 
there's some kind yeah. of I'm going for you and as Malvolio and I, Olivia are saying. That's oh. what I meant by the mount. Mm -hmm. That's, that's <laughs> really, just, I swear to God. We know, we know. We yeah. know. Well, and then the other thing that becomes important, and that's the thing, right? Is like, if, if a mount is part of your storytelling and both actors are down, like, let's go. But the other thing that I think is important to the scene is I get kind of like Helena vibes of like, I want to be your spaniel, you know, mm -hmm. from Malvolio, that there's mm -hmm. a power dynamic happening here that he's actually if anything, living in his sort of sub submissive role to this lady. And so I think to play him as grabbing at her, not only for the time, but also for what he's saying in the text mm. might be crossing a line that we just don't, I don't buy that he's going to just grab at her. But what I do buy is that he is begging at her feet or he is mm -hmm. showing off his clothes for her and asking for her approval. Or he is, he's like luxuriating in his gartered legs and like bowing down to her, right? Like all these kind of gestures of let me be your spaniel to mm -hmm. Olivia are things to play with that will involve zero touch and are very intimate and can make the audience uncomfortable in all the ways we want them to be <laughs> exactly without making the actors do so something that's outside their boundaries so you're saying he's a bottom i think so <laughs> i think that's what's happening like and and the best malvolios you know i've never actually worked on this play but i've seen it quite a bit and the best malvolios i've seen have really leaned into that have leaned into the like, I'll be your servant, madam, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'll come to your bed whenever you call me, you know, like that energy, I think, can do a lot for the scene and is a way to sort of creatively get around any, any break of social status that mm -hmm. wouldn't happen in this world, but also get around working, basically being able to work within the actor's boundaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's incredibly valuable insight. I'm really with you, Cha. I I feel like it's too soon for Malvolio to suddenly feel like he is in charge of Olivia. I don't think that he can shake that uh, that role for himself. It's all he has at the moment, right? He looks completely different. He's trying to smile. Um, it's, it, it's an amazing thing. And in that Stratford production that John and I saw, there was a wonderful scene at the end of the scene where Malvolio reads the letter, where he says, and I shall smile. And you see, and I so apologize to the actor, I'm terrible with with names. But the actor who plays Malvolio goes from that very stern expression to smiling in the most painful, mm. slowest way that I have ever seen that was so incredibly powerful. And that made me glad that I got to see this performance through a camera. I, because I, I didn't don't... get to that part. Oh, it was so I good. I didn't make it there, but that's a classic beat. That's a classic beat for Malvolio. Really good. And unfortunately, one that's going to be very difficult if you are in, you know, a traditional proscenium setting and you can't necessarily see the actor's face that clearly. But uh, it was masterful. It was beautiful. And really 
showed the transformation that was going on with Malvolio, where he was fighting, fighting, fighting his natural inclinations to do this other thing. And I think that the, the whole interaction has such profound understandings about mutuality and consent, because if Malvolio was being true to himself, he would not have ended up in that situation. He was willing to violate his own uh, boundaries for Olivia, which was clearly not a healthy choice and which Mariah knew he would fall for. And so that, you know, then he comes fully formed with his deranged expression and crazy outfit walking into the group of people who he has been at pains, incredible pains to prove how he was the dignified one, how he was the grown up in the room the whole time. And it's all gone. It's all gone in this one appearance. Well, I think that's a line that John read so beautifully. This does make some obstruction in the blood, this cross gartering, but what of that? Mm-hmm. Like he's literally in pain, <laughs> yes. right? It's like, you know, if for those of us who have worn a bodice, it's a very restrictive yes. garment. Um, and you like how it makes you look and you might show it off, but it's a restrictive garment. Mm-hmm. And so the, the sort of pain he's willing to go through which is why I think for me, in terms of the movement of this scene and the action of the scene, him really showing off the pains he's going through for her mm-hmm. is sort of more important than any touch necessarily that happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know? He's so sad and wonderful and just Charlie Brown of him, man. He's just such mm-hmm. a, a little red haired girl. They, mm-hmm. uh, that brings, which brings up another thing, uh, if I may, just to add on uh, with uh, Mariah. In the beginning here, she's getting, you know, I mean, she wrote those great lines, right? Mm-hmm. Did she write those lines? Those great, like, the, mm-hmm. you know, born great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, and so she gets that, you know, she gets to see this, uh, this whole thing, like, you know, mm-hmm. coming to life in front of a great moment for Mariah in this scene. As, as well. a script writer, she, yeah. <laughs> seeing all of this happen, you know, I, I, I mean, I would, great. I would just be giddy, you know, it was, mm-hmm. uh, like, even uh, imagine her like mouthing along with her, exactly. with her own lines. <laughs> That's I such that. a wonderful insight, John. And so with that, let's go to, I want to do a little, just a little thing here where Mariah says, how do you Malvolio? What the fuck is going on with you? And Malvolio says at your request, yes, Nightingale's answer does and i want to explain that line because it's not obvious what he's saying is that he's a nightingale and mariah is a lesser creature as a jackdaw and yet he will speak to her even though she is so far beneath him which (laughs) makes the next few lines even better let's see john would you read let's see i'm gonna let cha read Mariah, just for fun. And then, Bridget, if you would read Malvolia again. Mm -hmm. And then if you would read Olivia, John. So let's start with, why appear you? Why appear you with this ridiculous boldness before my lady? Be not afraid of greatness, twas well writ. What meanest thou by that, Malvolio? Some are born great. Some achieve greatness. What sayest thou? And some have greatness thrust upon them. Heaven restore thee. Okay, <laughs> that's the moment. That's the moment, by the way, that I was talking about before. With the mounting. The or, the, mm. or the running. Or the, okay, anyway, continuing on. Sorry. Okay, so, so those have to be some of the greatest lines ever written. And 
uh, so applicable and often said unironically in the way that Malvolio does, where people are going, hey, I'm great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this ends with a, a really fantastic. nice uh, uh, link into, you know, where Olivia said is, at least in regards to Malvolio, I think, you know, you guys were saying earlier, which is so important, which is that she's thinking about Cesario, you know, through all this. I yes. mean, that's that's where she's at. But this this whole, uh, the end of this, why this is very Midsummer of Madness, mm-hmm. which lends a kind of like light sunshine, summer camp kind of air to her perception of what's going on at that moment with him. Not that she's focused on him to, you know, understand any depths of demonic possession or other things, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But then it's, it's you know, she's... Uh, She's not trying to get him arrested at this point. And it's more of the kind of topsy-turvy world that Twelfth Night is, where conventions are traditionally flipped to the point where things are so crazy that it's as if it was summertime. That that Twelfth Night has so true to its form that the very seasons have altered and everybody is just crazy in love, as as we know happens in Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. Ah, so, and that's a a lovely ending to that scene. I think you're right there. Olivia really sums it up. Uh, The servant shows up. I think it's the servant's only line in the play. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cesario has come back. Olivia's very excited. And so Olivia and Mariah have left leaving Malvolio to himself on the stage and talking to himself out loud, as he does, fortunately, for us and the playwright. Poor guy. Poor guy. It's just so meant to be. It's just everything is working out perfectly. Mm -hmm. This is so wonderful. I mean, she just said it. There's no way this isn't happening. There's no way this isn't totally true. No scruple. No obstacle. This is, I'm the man. Mm-hmm. Everyone's the man in this. <laughs> I yes. am the man. Yes. Truly Malvolio's delusion. And the, and the fact that, you know, as Mariah, I can't even imagine just being like, I didn't think it would be this successful. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. That it would work this well. Yes. I mean, he's literally making every line right. fit his yeah. image of what's happening. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. 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 It's so great. <laughs> Let's see, would you, Bridget? Okay, first of all, this is very sexy language in this monologue, which I can only imagine must have been hilarious to Shakespeare's audiences who got all of the sexual innuendo in here. But just as we were talking about Antonio's language and how in certain speeches he's talking about sharp blood argument you get this very kind of dashing almost violent character and here the words malvolio is using is humble sloth tongue tang put thyself into the trick of singularity which is a masturbation joke and um, a reverent carriage a slow tongue in the habit of some sir of note and so forth (laughs) and I love this. Bridget, would you start from why everything adheres together? Sure. Let me just say, but before I start, that this is one of those original practices moments where you just talk to the audience, where it's not Mm -hmm. Malvolio talking to himself. It's Malvolio talking to uh, 
to the audience. Yes. And you have to do that or you've got an actor just mumbling to the floor, which mm-hmm. is not what you want. Yes. <laughs> Why? Everything adheres together. That no dram of a scruple, no scruple of a scruple, no obstacle, no incredulous or unsafe circumstance. (laughs) What can be said? Nothing that can come between me and the full prospect of my hopes. (laughs) Well, Jove, not I, is the doer of this, and he is to be thanked. (laughs) That's awesome. And there's just something so hilarious about all those scruples, because he is using no scruples and saying the word scruple. It's just, it's adorable. And this brings up one of those points that the article that I was talking about makes, which is that Malvolio consistently credits Jove for his success for his luck. As we'll see going forward, Mariah tries to get him to pray to God and he he won't do it. And so she uses evidence of this, of how he's clearly possessed. He, throughout the play, it's really interesting to hear which characters invoke God as being in charge of their fate, which ones invoke time which ones invoke the sea? Which ones invoke Jove? And this will, it clarifies a line down here that we'll get to in a minute. But as soon as Malvolio gets the letter, then he is crediting Jove for the whole shebang, which is not what you're supposed to do uh, in terms of the Protestant idea of providence, that God provides providence and only God is responsible for the things that happen to you. And to credit anybody else, yourself is the worst. To say, as Viola repeatedly says, I'll wait for time to untangle this. It's too big of a problem for me to deal with. She doesn't say, I'll let God sort it out. Festi is more religious than Malvolio is. Festi invokes God constantly. And to me, again, that is so fascinating that the character that is supposed to be the most taboo-breaking is actually the one that adheres most closely to the religious conventions of the Elizabethan era, and Malvolio just goes off into Jove land. (laughs) (laughs) What do we know? Because I know Jove. Do we know what the word Jove like actually in that time is like? Because I I know it is a kind of a a a stand-in for God, but I don't actually know the history of it. Oh, okay. I am happy to go into that for three hours, but I'll try and keep it down to under three minutes. So, uh, Jove is also Jupiter, is the mm-hmm. Roman god, also known as Zeus in the Greek pantheon. And so people would say, uh, because it was considered rude to swear in God's name. They'd say by Jove instead of by God. Or, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or Jove take you or Jove be damned and so on. And so a, a certain amount of that in a kind of a a loose tongue kind of a speech where you're clearly not taking it seriously, you're actually being sort of reverential about it. 
here where somebody is is actually invoking Jove as God yeah. uh, is really crossing quite a few lines for these uh, Protestants. Um, and Jove as the king of the gods, very loose idea of fidelity, certainly had no concept of consent regularly. Oh, yeah. The rape culture, unfortunately, particularly in certainly in the United States and Britain, English speaking countries, we can trace our acceptance of rape right right back to the ancient Greeks easily. Malvolio is is invoking a god who does not believe in consent <laughs> already. <laughs> Which is a problem, <laughs> unlike the early modern kind of more Protestant idea of of Jesus, where you know Jesus is all about consent, really, in so many ways. And that message, however, it got to us wherever it came from. There's a lot of very kind of humane, respectful messages in there. He he respects Mary Magdalene. He's not talking shit about women. He's certainly not anti-Semitic because he's Jewish. And so there's there's a lot to be admired in those messages. And to be clear, I'm not a Christian, but I do recognize as a dramaturg what Protestantism did mean to some of the early modern English. So when he says, well, Jove, not I, is the doer of this, and he is to be thanked, the fact that Toby Belch comes in and says, which way is he in the name of sanctity is very apt in hmm. this moment. And here Fabian, <laughs> who in this production that John and I saw was dressed funny. like a like a madman lawyer uh, <laughs> as in like a 60s, I mean, madman 60s show mm. lawyer. And I felt like that was one of the best interpretations of Fabian that I'd ever seen. And then later when he takes the letter away from Festi to read it, it made it even more sense in my mind that whoever this guy is who acts and dresses like a lawyer would be the one to read that and to defend Mariah later. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I just, I love that. That's no, a great point. I think is Fabian's mm -hmm. always a bit of a cipher in production, you know, mm -hmm. you're always trying to figure Fabian out. So that's a great point. Yeah. I also love that as a read, which again, we're getting a little ahead, but it is in this scene, mm -hmm. is Fabian as a second for this duel. Yes. It would make mm -hmm. sense if he's a man of the law to be a second. Excellent. Right? Arbiter. Yeah. Excellent point. And we've probably all known a few lawyers in our time. <laughs> they like to party. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see any, you know, any incongruity between... A uh, 17th century uh, barrister who liked bear baiting, but could also dress up pretty good and speak for Mariah at the end. Um, <laughs> and I, as you say, he's kind of a cipher, so I really appreciated that that insight in that production. Uh, Fabian is, here he is, here he is. How is it with you, sir? How is it with you, man? He's being very solicitous here, but obnoxious also. Mavolia says, go off. I discard you. Let me enjoy my private. Hmm. Go off. All right. This, well. is, this is a weird moment here, too, because we're... Go, oh, go off. There we go. <laughs> All right. What was I thinking? I, 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 
Where was I? <laughs> but you know, this scene, you know, you were talking earlier about how this whole thing's like a um, sort of a self-contained uh, show in itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, this is really just such a different flavor coming into it here. You know, it, it's, we've got like kind of setups and kind of farcical representations of things that are also then happening in a more dire and realistic way. You know, later in the scene, I'm thinking of, of course, like the Aggie Cheek versus the Antonio stuff, like that mm -hmm. that Cesario duel versus the the real stakes that Sebastian and Antonio find themselves in. And this this flavor here is, you know, we're we're is this setup of this great moment with the cross guardering and uh, and the yellow stockings and and the the headiness and the giddiness of what's going on at court. And then now, though, a very different specific tone and a lot of effort being taken to make it happen by these guys you know mm -hmm. i mean this this isn't a like an this is where the joke starts to get into the weird stephen king part of the movie here mm -hmm. you know it's like it's, the kids are going a little off into a weird direction here this isn't just embarrassing him and i don't think that they're all humans but but the effort that they put in place here to to get that demonic thing set up for later in the play the effort that they go to here is, is kind of bizarre and malevolent although they shakespeare does i think try to earn it by malvolio being such a shit to yeah. them in the scene but and i just really love what you said cha about the subservient quality to malvolio and that that submissive aspect because he the part of the comedy this whole thing is the flipping back and forth between him as he's yeah. faced with you know these the the other servants or their lower status lords or any of that kind of stuff, the back and forth, turning it on and off and on and off and completely, absolutely not self-aware at all. <laughs> but see, seeing this, uh, this, this setup here was, it's always like kind of a discordant note in, in the, uh, in the midsummer madness that, that had been brewing up until now. And it gets played out, I think even further at the end of this whole scene, when we get into that really tragic uh, Antonio uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he is talking about Jove and the fact that he is, is truly sick with self-love as Olivia charges at, way back in act one somewhere um, or act two. Don't at me people. Um, <laughs> what is it? The kid, the kids have a name for what they're doing here. Nagging. No, they want you to think you're crazy. Oh, gaslighting. Gaslighting. Gas okay, here we have. Love. Not, not, okay, yeah. So. Gaslighting. <laughs> yeah, yes. so gaslighting. So this Gas is, oh, yeah. I mean, classic. Uh, yeah, well, I guess well, Shakespeare it, had it. It may sure. not <laughs> surprise you unduly to find that I don't think they are gaslighting him. Um, I, according to the beliefs at the time in the early modern theater, he is possessed. He is truly possessed. He's talking about Jove. He has completely disregarded his social role. And your social role was ordained by God. To trespass against that is a clear sign that you are in league with the devil. And because it was demonic possession that caused madness, that caused insanity. So they are, in addition to talking about him being mad and insane, they are also talking about him not being godly. Uh, Mariah says, law you, and you speak ill of the devil. She's talking to Toby. 
how he takes it at heart. Pray God he be not bewitched. To me, it's not clear at all that they don't believe that he is actually possessed, that he actually is insane. No, no, I don't think they, I mean, they're part, they're part of the plot. I mean, what does he say? The, the... No, part of the plot, the, the original plot was to get him to expose his pretensions and his uh, stalking of Olivia to Olivia so that she can recognize that there's more going on under the surface, that maybe he's not as trustworthy as she thinks he is because he's going around trying to get rid of her family and her friends and is lying about things that she said. And so I don't necessarily think that they don't believe he is crazy and that he is possessed because it's what people genuinely believed at the time. Now, if you or I were saying these things to a boss or a coworker, we would be gaslighting them because we know that madness is not caused by demonic possession. We know it's not contagious. We know that there's no way that he went from being basically a rational human to having his brain chemistry go haywire, which is the way that we understand madness. In this case, I think it's more likely that they are concerned that they were they thought they were lighting a match and it was actually dynamite that actually he is in fact possessed and so i, I mean i i in, in would pay to see the ticket for it yeah, but i <laughs> i think that just the setup of this thing is so and you know with the you know toby's bluster uh coming in their reactions after mm -hmm. he leaves you know talking about what they're going to do with him you know we're going to have him bound and then you know they're we're going to mm -hmm. uh, uh release him from this 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 gag you know, it's kind of like a, they're kind of congratulating and checking in with mm. themselves. You get the vibe, you know, as they're going on, uh, as they go through this scene as well. I, it's Well, and it's the Toby says, the Toby says his very genius hath taken the infection of the device man, which to me says he really is now. Has well, he's been, in it. Yeah, he's, he's been driven it. mad. He really has been driven mad. And then Mariah says, nay, pursue him now, lest the device take air and taint. And so she's saying, look, we've got to put him away before he makes the whole household crazy. Well, I think it's you, you, you once when someone's in the momentum of mm -hmm. uh, like their plot, their joke for him, if he's got too much time to think about it. You know what I mean? We got right. Is or is that no? No. In this it like... case, it's it's a direct reference to the fact that you can catch that madness is infectious, and they don't want it. The device is the plot. It was Mariah's plot, though? That's the device. That was the device, but it, it took such root in him. Okay, gotcha. like say so. So let's say you guys got to chime in here, man. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I'm I'm honestly loving listening because because I think and you know, call me an equivocator, uh, but I think I think there's I think that there's just juice, there's meat to both of these things. And I think I 
I think I tend toward John's interpretation more than Rachel's that, that, and I'm at, I'm looking at the end of, of this moment right now and looking specifically at Fabian's lines line, which is why we shall make him mad indeed. And so what that tells me is they haven't made him mad yet, but they could. And so to me in this scene, they're still playing with him. They're still baiting him. There's, it's still a game to them and it's a darker game than him in the cross garters. But I do think that by the end of the scene, they're starting to worry that like he might be possessed and he might be insane and, but that it hasn't happened yet. So I kind of, I'm sort of in between, I guess. Well, and my feeling is that, that Fabian and Mariah may not agree. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of room in there. Like, we, we got you know, three different that, people. You know, that but... Mariah... Also, Cha, is... how dare you look at the text for your answer? <laughs> <laughs> Never do it again. Damn, my dramaturgy hat. Be gone. Again. <laughs> Go off. <laughs> but I think we can all be in a situation and all have differing views of how severe something oh, yeah. is in that situation. And Mariah, who has driven him to this point maybe more concerned about him being actually crazy than Fabian, who, eh, it's all just, it's all just sport. Mariah says something else in here where she says, and I just want to bring this off uh, more for clarity, uh, where, oh, sorry, it's actually Fabian who says this, carry his water to the wise woman. And so what that refers to is that some people used to believe that you could diagnose all kinds of ills by looking at somebody's pee and this was not universally accepted it was kind of considered quack medicine at the time sort of like it's almost a joke like oh let's take his pee to the wise woman and see if she can figure out what's going on because all poor malvolio needs is for the the local hedge witch to go, oh, yeah, he's crazy. I can see because his pee is dark brown or whatever hmm. color it was. So Fabian is, he's always such a joker. So I just kind of assume that he's joking. Uh, but Mariah says, yeah, good idea. Should be done tomorrow morning if I live. And I suspect that she's maybe having some second thoughts. My lady would not lose him for more than I'll <laughs> And so, again, to me, this is possibly uh, Mariah realizing that he may indeed be a lost cause and she may be in trouble if she has actually revealed him or pushed him towards being completely unbalanced. If I may, the, the yeah. marriage should be done tomorrow morning. If First of all, this carry his water to the wise woman with the, the pee thing. Uh-huh. Always a really interesting moment staging wise because Carrie's water to the wise woman. And it, for me, well, it's just such an odd thing to uh, have to explain to the audience in yes. action, <laughs> action. So you're like, what, I mean, what, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, but to have them understand that they're talking about urine or what, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a bizarre thing. But Mary, it shall be done tomorrow morning. <laughs> Pardon me. Uh, Mary, and it shall be done tomorrow morning if I live, you know, the bedpan, right? So it, uh, uh, she's the, mm. the maid. She's the maid, the bedpan, mm, right? The next depends. Uh, depends how you do it. Yeah. Well, and I this is a one of those classic moments, you know, uh, in terms of staging. That it's how do you communicate the this uh, intention to the audience in this 
section without getting into some bizarre charades or into, you know, some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, I, mean, I mean, it's, how do you guys solve this moment? I just glossed right over it. There you because, go. <laughs> because I don't May think it. cut it. Yeah. <laughs> you cut, cut it. Yeah, that's a great one. I don't think, it, I don't think it matters. What were you going to say, Cha? No, that I, I, I have this like a theory about theater that so much of it is about resonance, like mm-hmm. resonances. And so to me, I sort of feel like if the actors know what they're talking about, even if the audience doesn't fully comprehend details, they'll get it or they'll be yeah. willing to like buy it or let it go. So for me, what's important is that the actors know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of don't think the audience needs to know that it's specifically about urine. Right. Like even if they catch that, it's like, are they, is this witchcraft? Like that's fine. Yeah. They can mm-hmm. catch whatever they want about, you know, mm-hmm. which is also the right. way I feel about, the preponderance of dirty jokes yes like yes <laughs> you don't have to no <laughs> strap one on for everyone you no. can and if the people if that, the, the people that know get what it are gonna get about, it yeah i want a yeah. bumper sticker on that man that's, uh, <laughs> that's great man <laughs> i think that especially in a scene where like uh we were talking about malvolio's monologue up here oh ho do you come near me now how many sex jokes are in there i think it's distracting (laughs) to the scene to make a big deal out of those but i also think that you know shakespeare has been presented as such an elitist very victorian kind of anti-queer anti-sex prudish playwright that it's really important that people understand that that is not who Shakespeare was. And when you get to do a production like John did, where you get to do an erotic version of Twelfth Night, well, then this is all ripe. <laughs> it was one of several several productions. That are, they're not all like that. <laughs> John is at pains to diminish the fact that he did this awesome production that we all wish we had seen. But yeah. it, it, John clearly does very PG productions when the situation calls for it, which is most of the time when you're outdoors. It also does feel like maybe Shakespeare is always PG-13. Like in mm-hmm. to, to your point about that it'll go over kids' heads, mm-hmm. but there are things that are sexual. And I think that if you think of it as being PG-13 – you'll get more of the jokes and your actors will too. And then your audience will, right? If you Mm -hmm. think of it as being just going above kids' heads, Mm -hmm. that's the sweet spot, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Let the words do the work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then let the teenagers find out so that they get Mm -hmm. the jokes and and want to do Shakespeare. Mm. Uh, Oh, so Fabian gives that line, why we shall make him mad indeed. And Mariah says the house will be the quieter, which I'm not so sure about, but that's an hmm. interesting take. Might and then, that just because Malvolio will be put away. So, like, if mm-hmm. he goes into mm-hmm. a madhouse, mm-hmm. we won't have to deal with him, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I just picture him screaming from down there. So, I don't well, know. And also, it's, it's really, um, I mean, especially in this scene, Toby and everyone is screaming all the time. You yes. Know what I mean? <laughs> This line's, uh, you know, it, it could even be... Um, Go ahead and read it for us, John. Uh, so, come, we'll have him. Come, we'll have him in a dark room and bound. My niece is already in the belief that he's mad. 
You may curate us for our pleasure and his penance till our very pastime, tired, out of breath, prompt us to have mercy on him. At which time, <laughs> we'll bring the vice to the bar and crown thee for a finder of madmen. But see, but see. <laughs> <laughs> and that certainly backs up the idea that they are gaslighting him for sure. But I'm I'm wondering how much Mariah is concerned that maybe he really is. You know, I, I think there's an echo that you're talking about in that line. The house will be the quieter. Uh, you guys will have less to bitch about. Make, bitch about and yell about. <laughs> you know, maybe she's there's something, yeah. Maybe there's That's interesting. Something. Yeah. After that kitchen scene. Where you kind of get the feeling that they were being jerks just to piss off Malvolio to start with, besides just being drunk and loud and having a good time. Mm -hmm. um, they clearly, as soon as she says, oh, Malvolio is going to hear you and come in, they get louder. So at that point, who are they going to have to rebel against if Malvolio is not there? <laughs> okay. And now we come into uh, the... Uh... My favorite... <laughs> Cha's favorite. And Cha, I just want to say that before you and I started talking about these subjects, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know how Cha understands all this. This is so complicated and arcane. I, I, I can't even think I'm ever going to be able to make sense of this. And now you, you explained it so clearly, and it made so much sense that I'm like, why did this not seem obvious to me before it's just been one of those things where it just completely flipped in my head and i am so so thankful so um um i, I also oh, I, I don't want to miss this line I, i'm going backwards and forwards a little bit but one of the best lines ever if this were played upon a stage now i could condemn it as an improbable fiction says mm. fabian to the audience if ever there was a, a plot hole pop out by a writer, here it is. It's like, I know this is ridiculous. So sue me. You're entertained, right? Are you not entertained? Fabian says, more matter for a May morning as he sees Ague Cheek coming in, bringing back that Midsummer Madness idea that things are just going off the rails here in this very prescribed, tradition-driven court that is suddenly topsy-turvy. And here comes Andrew Aguecheek. Here's the challenge. Read it. Warrant. There's vinegar and pepper in it. So, Cha, would you tell us? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, if you're following this in chronological order and you're listening to us talk about these scenes, you will have heard me talk a little bit about sort of the challenge letter, right? And that the challenge letter is an important part of the sort of trajectory of the duel and that part of the challenge letter, the, the most important thing is that it be clear, that it be concise and that it sort of be uh, not necessarily without any passion, but with as little passion as possible so that we can have a dialogue and maybe not fight. But of course we heard in the earlier scene, Toby encouraging uh, Aggie Cheek to put as much you know, vinegar and pepper in it as he could. And so here he is with this letter, presumably that Toby as his second or Toby and Fabian as his seconds will bring to Cesario to challenge him to a duel. And so right off the top, we already know from the earlier scene that this is not the way this is supposed to go. And so we've at least 
those of us who know how the duel works have been on tenterhooks uh, <laughs> to actually hear the letter. And the fact that we get to hear the letter read out loud is is why I said this is one of my favorite scenes. It's just joyous and ridiculous. <laughs> Would you... How about if you just read the letter and we'll we'll leave Fabian's comments out of it because I I just like to hear the whole letter and then you can tell us interject wherever you like instead of Fabian interjecting telling us <laughs> what is crazy about this letter. Cha interjecting, yeah. The, the only important thing <laughs> is that Fabian is interjecting with great job, yeah, that totally works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is Sir Toby is reading Andrew's letter and it reads. Youth, whatsoever thou art, thou art but a scurvy fellow. Wonder not, nor admire not in, my, in thy mind why I do call thee so, for I will show thee no reason for it. Thou canst, thou comest to the Lady Olivia, and in my sight she uses thee kindly, but thou liest in thy throat. That is not the matter I challenge thee for. <laughs> I will waylay thee going home, where if it be thy chance to kill me, thou killst me like a rogue and a villain. Fare thee well, and God have mercy upon one of our souls. He may have mercy upon mine, but my hope is better. And so, look to thyself. Thy friend as thou, thy friend as thou usest him, and thy sworn enemy, angry Andrew Aguecheek. It's just, it's joyful. It's just joyful. Um, it really is. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of this, right? Even just hearing you're all you all laughing in that moment there's a lot of this that you just get right mm -hmm, that, that's mm -hmm. just funny even now um but some things that i find particularly joyful are are i will show thee no reason for it which is literally the point of a challenge letter <laughs> to show the reason for it mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah um i also love thou liest in thy throat that is not the matter i challenge thee for yeah. <laughs> which is like what does that mean so basically, because you need a lie for a duel to be legitimate, Aguchik is sort of constructing a lie. <laughs> but what he's saying is, Cesario, you've lied in my own brain because <laughs> you think I'm challenging you for this and I'm not. Um, and then I also love, I will waylay thee going home. <laughs> Because it's basically saying, I'm just going to punch, like, I'm just going to punch you. I'm just going to show up and mm. we're going to fight rather than the point of the challenge is also to set up the sort of procedure for the duel. Like, where are we going to meet? What, what? It starts that process. But it's like, no, no, I'm just going to stop you on your way home and we're going to fight. <laughs> um, and then if thou killst me, thou killst me like a rogue and a villain. So it's saying like, I'm doing this whole duel so that we'll both be honorable men. But if you win, you're not honorable. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and then, you know, this is the part that I think is, is funny, even if you know nothing about how a duel works, which is God have mercy upon one of our souls. And what he's, <laughs> you know, what he's basically saying is just like, because I think I'm going to win. I hope he only has mercy on your soul, but that would mean that I lose because you're alive and fine. It, the like double speak of it is just, and you know, and, and that speaks also to thy friend as thou usest him, which would, you wouldn't use a friend mm -hmm. and thy sworn enemy, uh, which is just like, I, I seriously, the first 
time that I read this letter, knowing the things I know about duels, I briefly toyed with, is that my email signature now? (laughs) (laughs) Thy friend as thou usest her and thy sworn enemy. That's great. Because it's just too good. So, so, you know, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of details in here that are just uh, doing the same thing that Sir Toby was doing to Aggie Cheek in the last scene, which is doing the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do in this moment to sort of maintain your honor. Uh, and it's just, it's such good fun. It's just such good fun. And I have to say that as somebody who doesn't know any of the, the dueling codes or, or the, the secret language of duels, it's funny in all the right places, even without that knowledge, because of how well it's constructed. Yep. You know, and because of what the actors do with that. When, yeah, and, and as you say, they understand what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Totally, man. Every, you know, every time when you get to that, fare thee well and God have mercy upon one of our souls. And then every, I think every version of it I've seen then gets uh, uh, Toby going into bewilderment with the, he may have mercy upon mine, but my hope is better. And so look to thy soul. And it's just kind of endless, like <laughs> but those those innate actor beats have always mm-hmm. run in those moments, even without the knowledge. But this is uh, so um, in earnest from from Andrew. It, it's yes. just yeah. you know, that, this extra extra layer of of, yes. of knowledge with the duel and how he's uh, just desperately trying mm. to do this to thing. Be a big aspect. boy, yeah, he's to, trying to be a big boy. Mm. Well, and you know, and Toby and Fabian are encouraging him. Like one of the important sort of Fabian interjections to my mind. Uh, is a good note that keeps you from the blow of the law. Because Mm -hmm. technically, duels are illegal at this Mm -hmm. time. Now, granted, no one cares, right? Just like now, there are a lot of things that are illegal that we do anyway. Um, (laughs) But saying, I'll give you no reason for it, and Fabian saying, good, good, (laughs) you'll be kept from the law, Mm -hmm. is like encouraging Aguchik's sort of backwards doing of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially, I love this, this reading of if Fabian is a barrister, mm. right? That, mm-hmm. that A, he's going to be legitimized in knowing what the law is, but also B, he knows that this is, this letter is terrible, right? Both he <laughs> yes. and <Toby> know. <laughs> and so, you know, we will get this a little further ahead, but I want to mention, I think what's so funny, if you know the play, is that you know that Sir Toby and Fabian have the like, are you going to send the letter? And Toby's like, hell no, yeah, right? Yeah. Because it's so ridiculous that Cesario, even Viola, who who's a, raised as a woman in this society, would know that this is ridiculous and not something she needs to answer. Um, so this letter never sees the light of day beyond this scene and beyond this moment uh, because it's like, no way. Then, then our plot wouldn't work. If she mm-hmm. received this letter or he, as Cesario, would rece- we, it would never work. Mm-hmm. And that is such a useful insight, because as somebody who doesn't understand why it's crazy, this letter, to me, didn't seem any crazier than the letter that Toby comes up with later. So that is super helpful. And so often, unfortunately, with Shakespeare, when I'm confronted with something that I don't understand, I assume that it's just some fault in me, not information that I'm missing and could easily 
<laughs> fill that gap in my knowledge. So I, I really want to encourage people that if you don't understand something that's going on in a Shakespeare play, it it's not any uh, indictment on your character or your mental capabilities. Uh, we just don't know these things until we know them. And here is Cha Ramos, who is spending a lifetime uh, studying these things and can edify us with uh, her wonderful knowledge and help. Okay, there there is indeed vinegar and pepper in it, as well as near as we can tell, strawberries, random <laughs> pieces of bacon, any other thing, the kitchen sink, basically. And it doesn't make sense because it simply does not make sense at, at any level. Even if you were living then, you would have been gone. Well, that letter's ridiculous. I, I wonder, and this is pure self-conjecture, they're talking about Malvolio and his madness and his inability to deal rationally with things. And then here we have Aguecheek, clearly not being rational in this situation, clearly not adhering to the social norms. And I kind of feel like there's a little bit of a jibe at the upper classes here that, oh, you you folks think you've got all your shit together, but no, you are just as stupid and crazy as, as everybody else, even uh, poor Malfolio. It's actually, it's a really good point. And it's important to note, you know, when we're talking about what is specifically being referenced in this play is Saviolo's dueling code. And Saviolo was an Italian immigrant to London. So although his code was written in English, he's Italian. And the lower classes in England at this time would have had zero respect for the Italians in terms of it's like fancy, flourishy stuff. We're brawlers. We're, you know, we're British. We we fight each other. These Italians Still are true. like, <laughs> well, and, and it's, tr it was truly a, like these Italians with their fancy words and their fancy rules. And you can't just fight someone in a bar. Like that would have been part of the humor of this is like, really? You're going to write him a letter? Like go fight him, <laughs> go fight the guy. Um, and so it's true. I think, I think there is absolutely a jab at the like ridiculousness of the code itself of Saviolo's mm. code that like, I have a lot of respect for and think is really cool. But I, I think you're, you know, your lower class British theater goer is going, LOL, the Italians are ridiculous, <laughs> you know, and the high class people who follow the Italians are ridiculous. Hmm. So we now have Olivia and Viola have entered the scene. Olivia is talking to Viola. Um, she says this line that has always just hit me 
so hard. Mm. I have said too much unto a heart of stone. And that she she walks in, and this is where she is emotionally. I feel like it gives us such a clear and beautiful visual of that heartache that she's feeling. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't help but notice that now she is in Arsino's position. She is pining after somebody who does not want her. And... I think that's also part of this Twelfth Night or What You Will, where roles keep being reversed, flipped around, back and forth again, that now she is having to suffer the fate that Orsino is suffering. And regardless of what we think about Orsino and how strong his affections may be, certainly Festy has questions about that. We have questions about that. Nonetheless, he's believing it. (laughs) at the moment and is experiencing that kind of heartache that I I guess most of us have felt at one time or another. And she says, she's laid, laid mine honor to uncherry out. And she's put herself in such an embarrassing position. She's chasing after basically the page of the local noble. She doesn't know if this person is a noble themselves. All she knows for sure is she thinks that he's a eunuch, not going to get any heirs from a eunuch, hmm. most likely. And I keep thinking about how when we're dealing with a big emotional crisis, how we lie awake in bed thinking about, oh, God, I can't believe I said that. Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to say the next time I see them? And then like going back and forth between like, oh, they're so dreamy to, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. You know, <laughs> it's like such a stressful situation. That, uh, that, that initial bit from her that I've said too much peace before Violet response is a great moment in terms of Olivia's character for me, because it's, you know, with, with brilliant, brilliant men and women, uh, brilliant people, you often can associate them with strategic thinking, control, mm. and these kinds of things. And she's blatantly stating here that she's completely and perfectly aware of her mm-hmm. uh, logical responsibilities in this matter, but that she's deciding to ride the wave of life. And that decision elevates her even more here. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's the kind of thing that you when you've got someone that drinks everything, you know what I mean? It's not as when you have that person that's deciding that they're going to be ridiculous in this moment. Mm-hmm. It just, it's just so it's wonderful to see. <laughs> and it humanizes her. Mm-hmm. We really love Olivia in these moments where she's so vulnerable and so embarrassed. She, she wants to surf, you know, yeah. I mean, she wants to get yeah. on the wave. She's, she <laughs> sees it and understands it. It's ridiculous, but that's what life's for. Well, and every time we see her with Viola or Cesario, she loses a little bit more control every time. And this, is the last, <laughs> this is the last time we see her with Cesario. Mm-hmm. The next time she sees Cesario, he's Sebastian. Yes. And so this is when this is sort of the climax of her interactions with Viola. And she has completely lost control and doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, which then gives it such an abrupt switch when Sebastian's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's wonderful comedy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it really is. This is this is the crescendo of her insanity, kind mm-hmm. of with of her infatuation. With and, and dramatically, it's such a, a great moment too, because of just in terms of <clears throat> pardon the plot point and the pace of things. Mm-hmm. We're writing that three three two to three four moment where mm-hmm. you know it's almost like the cinematic uh, quick cuts. You know where uh, mm-hmm. Shakespeare's mm-hmm. building momentum by a slice of this, a slice of that, a slice, mm-hmm. a slice, a slice, 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 and then we get to the end of the scene. And so uh, we're coming in sort of uh, middle of their conversation here. Mm-hmm. So we're mm-hmm. able to get in at the height, and then mm-hmm. the height, and we're going to have a lot more of that coming in as we get to the end of this scene here. Yeah, yeah. I think when we did it. We did it with me just chasing her on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Yeah, I yeah. totally could buy yeah. yeah, you know, like <laughs> lunging for her and blocking mm-hmm. her exit. And mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very almost three ring circusish in that there's mm-hmm. so much going on at once. Yeah. And that's a really interesting point, John, in terms of like building the tension and building the tension. And that just as the situation with Aguecheek gets to a point where they, it really can't go any farther, it can't get any more ridiculous. Mm-hmm. We don't even have like a moment's breath. Like at that point, he doesn't bring us into kind of a more mellow scene instead the stakes keep getting raised higher and higher and higher it's in this geometrically expanding yeah. exponentially getting yeah. more it's very farcical it is and so by, the, by the time we get to the end we get we need the dramatic pinpoint and which mm-hmm. is a major shift in the play itself you know yeah. that happens at the end of this scene you know yeah. at so many colors of all right all right so we will we will click right along here Olivia and Viola have that little chase around the stage there. Uh, yeah, I can totally see that with Cesario putting a chair between him and Olivia, all, all of that. Like what we used to see in the stereotypical businessman chasing his secretary mm-hmm. around the office kind of a thing. And it does feel inappropriate <laughs> <laughs> from what we would think of as, as somebody of a higher status Mm-hmm. pursuing somebody of a lower status to an uncomfortable degree. I think, you know, part of what makes it funny for us is that it's a woman doing it mm-hmm. and that we know that that Viola Cesario is not who Olivia thinks they are and that were they to disrobe that there would be a whole lot of surprise involved. Mm-hmm. But I still feel like that comes rushing through the scene. It it doesn't linger on that. It's just kind of building that tension. And then re-enters Sir Toby Belch and Fabian. There's their quarry, Viola Cesario. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, God save thee. And this comes back to that point I was making earlier about Malvolio invoking Jove all the time. And here's Toby Belch, this drunkard, this this night with very poor personal habits and hygiene (laughs) is still more godly than the steward who keeps invoking Jove. And uh, Viola, of course, says, oh, sure, you too, sir. Also, importantly, it's another moment where Toby is theeing Cesario and Cesario is doing Toby. So even while he's being this God-fearing man, he's also, which makes sense, right? Cesario is going to be of a lower social Sure. So you use the informal you versus the formal you. Mm -hmm. But it's also a little bit of an insult, right? Yes. He's theeing Cesario and Cesario says, and you, sir. 
like he's he's reminding him where the status is he's not not letting that slip and at that point right viola is kind of forced to listen to whatever nonsense toby says at that point right you can't just and it's also i mean like the gentleman guy that saved the also just like character wise it's just so Mm -hmm. obviously false for him to say you know like that's just (laughs) not anything he's really you know so just it's it's always struck me as a fun moment like Mm -hmm. where he's being you know we're even the the just the basic civil interaction of it is just something that's not him he's trolling yeah Yeah. he's trolling or or, you know (laughs) putting on the airs you know that's trolling and, yeah, yeah that's exactly trolling. yeah totally yeah, yeah. okay yeah, yeah i think of trolling as a lack of sincerity combined with a certain amount of obnoxiousness <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> like you can be obnoxious and sincere and you're still not trolling you're just being obnoxious <laughs> and you can be insincere and not obnoxious and in that case you're basically a con artist but well I, and i had a question about this yeah. uh if that's okay the um beginning of this dual moment mm-hmm. here potentially or whatever so is, is this in keeping with with the i mean so is there the here's the presentation of offenses or something or the the beginning of the of, of the message to you know well if we if you know if we recall Aguchik wrote a letter mm-hmm. yes that we just heard um but Obviously, Toby says, I'm not going to deliver this letter because this is going to ruin our whole fun plan. So what's interesting is the the challenge doesn't have to be a letter. The challenge can be issued by the second. And so here, Toby is basically taking on that role of the second mm. and issuing the challenge, pretending there's no letter, like pretending that the letter <laughs> never happened. Um, but But of course, and, you know, we'll see it as we go through this moment, Toby's Toby doesn't know what he's talking about and or <laughs> I like to think and but and or he's actively flouting the rules of the duel to make it as like scary and violent and you know intense as possible. So a lot of this is wrong quote unquote as per mm-hmm. the dueling code but it's so Toby. It's just Toby <laughs> trying to like up the ante here. Well, John how about if you read that line to us about that defense thou hast that defense thou hast betake thee to it of what nature the wrongs are thou hast done him i know not but thy interceptor full of despite bloody as the hunter attends thee at the orchard end dismount thy tuck be in thy preparation for thy assailant is quick skillful and deadly <laughs> okay cha tell us everything that's <laughs> Well, of course, the, the most important thing to me in this, in this speech is dismount thy tuck, just because we're gonna we're gonna dive into some real like dick jokes uh, if we have already. But like dismount thy tuck, you know, we think RuPaul's Drag Race, or at least that's where my brain goes. A tuck, <laughs> it would have meant the same thing in Shakespeare's time, in the sense that dismount thy tuck is unsheath thy sword, and mm. it means that both literally and figuratively. Um, so I just, that's my favorite line in this whole thing. Just, well, and how interesting to say that to a eunuch. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, like, it's Toby saying it to a eunuch. And it's also, which we'll see Viola use some of this language later too, but it's also, she's a woman. She knows that. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's like, 
it's awkward in a billion and one ways and like very funny to the audience because they know she's a woman. Toby believes he's a eunuch and it's also just about the sword. So it's like many layers of this are happening. And that's, oh gosh, that's just what I love about Shakespeare. And we get to here, we find out where the duel is supposed to take place at the Orchard End. And, you know, it's it's one of those moments where Toby is saying he hasn't even named who's mm. the person who's challenging, right? He starts <laughs> with that defense thou hast, but take thee to it. Of what nature the wrongs are thou has done him. Him who? Who him? Who are we talking about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fact that he doesn't name the challenger is totally off course. And also, he's saying he he's he's already, he'll attend the at the or he's already there. So there's no there's no time. There's no like time to cool the blood. It's like he'll wait for you at the orchard now. Now's the time. Let's go. And he doesn't even know why. Yeah. I mean, like, shouldn't, isn't that part of the whole process is like, oh, well, you called me a liar because, yeah. Yeah, it should be brief and clear. You should know who's challenging and why. None of that is happening here. None of that is going on here. And here's poor Viola. You mistake, sir. She notices this. (laughs) No dummy Viola goes, what? (laughs) I am sure no man hath any quarrel to me. My remembrance is very free and clear from any image of offense done to any man. She's pointing out that this reasoning is sketchy at best. Toby doubles down you'll find it otherwise i assure you and then she's like what what is he and so yeah, give us something on this line here yeah dueling stuff he is knight dubbed with unhatched rapier and on carpet consideration but he is the devil in private brawl so what we're saying he is knight and then I, it feels like a deflection like just okay he's maybe so does it, it, who's got a sense of these, are these insults, uh, unhatched rapier? Yeah, what does that mean? What's an unhatched rapier? <laughs> so the only, the part here that I'm not as clear on is uh, carpet consideration. Um, but an unhatched rapier, my understanding of that is that it's a, a like it, it hasn't been used in battle. It's a rapier mm. that's for ceremonial purposes. So basically what he's saying there is, He's a noble, right? He's a knight. <laughs> he was dubbed so with a ceremonial blade, and yet he's a devil in a private brawl, right? So he's both gentleman and, you know, going to kick your ass, going to kick your butt. Like that's, nice. <laughs> so that's, that's the dichotomy. I don't know what carpet consideration is. Get your Googlers out, <laughs> dear <laughs> listeners. We'll hold a contest. Oh, well, here we go. The copy of the Folger Twelfth night that I have says that it is on carpet considerations for considerations other than military prowess, usually a fee. The phrase "carpet night" was a derogatory term. Nice. Oh, Chaw bringing it home, just Chaw right in there with that <laughs> all in one. That was. This is. Thank you for that, Bridget. This is. You're welcome. This is one of those moments which we talk about a little bit in the in the sort of like podcast episode that we have on the duel. But that there, there is this, there's evidence throughout that Aggie Cheek is a bot knight. Mm. And he's not a born knight. So mm-hmm. Toby is actually a slightly higher status than Aggie Cheek is because Toby is a born noble. Right. And Aggie Cheek is a bot noble. Right. 
So I guess there is a little insult in here, right? There is a little like <laughs> a little dig. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a fancy knight and he's good at brawling, but he bought it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that also kind of explains why he would be good at brawling. Yeah. More than with a rapier. And as you were pointing out, that the English thought that all the fancy sword work was kind of wimpy compared to being able to get into a brawl with somebody. And yeah. I feel like the idea of Aguecheek getting in a brawl with anybody is hilarious to start with. Yeah. And so I think even just that juxtaposition in our minds of uh, Aguecheek in a tavern with a tankard in one hand and a, a big stick of wood in the other just letting fly, just I we just can't can't see it. It's just kind of hilarious. <laughs> and I I love the again the the words in this where he's really trying to scare Viola Cesario. Devil in private, souls and bodies hath he divorced three, incessant, implacable, pangs of death and sepulchre. <laughs> well, and that's an important one, right? So he says he's you know, he's so he's so angry and he's so bloodthirsty, mm -hmm. he's killed three people, that satisfaction can be none but by pangs of death. So what Toby is saying is that because because you would say, are you satisfied at each bout and satisfaction? Sometimes it was first blood. Sometimes it was just a tap. If you could tap me with the side of your blade, we're satisfied, right? You a, a, a hit, right? A touch mm -hmm. um, that that could be enough. And so what Toby here is saying is, no, no, to like, you know, Aguecheek will not be satisfied until you are buried in the ground. Which devil. is huge. Duels did not. Duels generally did not go to the death on purpose. They often went to the death because of infections from wounds. Right. Mm -hmm. Very rarely were duels fought to the death. So Toby is going above and beyond here. <laughs> and let's talk about the dick jokes for a minute, shall we? Oh, <laughs> John, John's favorite part. Oh my Because I feel like <laughs> this is the sort of drumbeat under this whole thing is that uh, handling a sword is a metaphor for handling a penis. We know that Viola does not own a penis and yet she's being continually, he's saying things to her like, strip your sword stark naked. Yep. Well, she's basically taking a peach to a gunfight right i mean it's not she doesn't she does not have that equipment that he keeps trying to uh get her to uh, expose use whatever and he knows this like he knows that she's a eunuch and this seems to me uh just a whole other layer of insults happening on here oh we'll just whip out your sword and take oh i see you don't have a dick oh well i guess you're going to die then aren't you <laughs> because whatever we think of Aguecheek cheek and his potential equipment he has more of it than viola does guaranteed mm. and on that basis alone if it's a contest of manhood even Aguecheek cheek can win this one 
And, well, and I, I think yeah. what's interesting about, you know, and this is kind of, this is kind of skipping ahead a little bit, mm-hmm. but Viola sort of ends this scene saying, I care not who knows so much of my metal. Mm-hmm. And, and what she's saying is like, listen, I'll be the coward here. Like I'll, yeah. t- I'll be the dickless person here. <laughs> yes. That's fine. I do not want to die. And importantly, right after this moment where where Toby says, you know, strip your sword stark naked, she says, this is as uncivil as strange. So it's mm. like, not only is this weird, like I have no memory of a person who I offended. This is coming out of nowhere. But it's also, this is completely wrong. Everything about this, the way that you're displaying this challenge to me, the way that the duel is going to be fought, like everything is completely uncivil. It's wrong by the code and yet even so by the end by her exit from this moment she's saying listen i don't care who knows that i'm a coward i call me a liar call me whatever you want i'm not gonna fight this duel which is like a a lot of self-awareness in this moment and also probably quite risky because she is in disguise and so if they know it, it it sort of it highlights her lack of manliness. Yes. And she's sort of willing to do that because she's not going to fight this guy. And a lot of times when I see this performed, I see Viola timid, scared. And I, I'm wondering now, with your explanation of how crazy the things that Toby is saying are, I wonder if it might make more sense for Viola to be almost uppity in this moment, because Toby, regardless of his social status, is clearly in the wrong here. And she is telling them him that to his face. Yep. Mm-hmm. If this is but a there, co- there's, Yeah. Well, there's the, there's the, the, the reality of the danger of the moment though, you know, this is mm-hmm. a, um, she, she doesn't know Toby's, um, you know, false oh, shit. Full of shit, you know. <laughs> you know, she doesn't know uh, all the. I think there's a reason why Aggie Cheek's not here. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, aside from the the code um, or not, but that uh, you know why Fabian was brought along, mm-hmm. or uh, for instance, instead. And this is you know schoolyard fight. This is mm-hmm. that is being set up here. You've always got a hype man, right? Mm-hmm. You've always got you know. Uh, and a, a lot of, I lived uh, not the greatest neighborhood when I was a youth. And, you know, it's so-and-so said that they're going to, and you And then this other guy comes up and starts saying the same thing. And then Toby right here threatens her himself. Yeah. Actually says it himself in that, that he's, he's, it's the only real moment, you, you know, that we see uh, in, in some arguments that we, we see some, some fire. Mm-hmm. like some, mm-hmm. some deal you know that mm-hmm. if unless you want to fight me you're mm-hmm. gonna fight him you know mm-hmm. and it depends on how you take that but all of these kind of i mean this is a a, a straight up brawl and as a you know sensitive poetry writing young lad uh <laughs> that some of us may have been back then um, <laughs> quite startling if yes. you're not used to that kind of yes. thing, you know? these big guys coming at you you know and yeah. uh, the one waiting uh so that that threat uh should be there yes right? yeah mm-hmm. and i think i think there can be a really cool sort of double layer one of the things i find fascinating when you do know a little bit about how these duels work is how much viola stands up for herself in this moment mm-hmm. in the sense that like i could imagine 
like, yes, she's truly scared. She's truly, mm. by the end, she's saying, I don't care if it completely besmirches my honor. I'm, I don't want to do this, right? She's scared. And also, she knows the dueling code. Because mm-hmm. she's like, wait, who, I haven't besmirched anyone. You haven't given me a name. Like, at one point, Toby has to say, his indignation derives itself out of a very competent injury, which is basically saying there is a legal, it's, it's a good enough injury. Yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, I wonder right, right. if Toby went into this conversation being like, I didn't think I'd have to explain this this much. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There could be a, tool, a cool mm-hmm. double layer of, yes, mm-hmm. Viola is scared, mm-hmm. but also she's really asking the right questions. And maybe Toby is like, why are you asking all these questions? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's he's on the defensive now. Yeah. He's on the defensive, and I don't, you know, I don't know about you, but when I've been in situations where it looked like I I had one of two choices: either submit to abuse or try and talk my way out of a situation. I can get pretty bold because at that point you like have nothing to frigging lose. Like Viola has nothing to lose by going, uh. This doesn't seem her, her speech here, though, legit was, here. Her reaction, though, to Toby's threat there is, um, is, is, it's kind of imploring enough quality to it with the beseech and the, and the, that kind of thing that to me, it, it, it's, it's almost like tactic of the if or whatever, you know, that uh, for, mm-hmm. as, as you uh, like it. And, uh, you know, if you said this, then I said this, or mm-hmm. can you mm-hmm. ask him what it is that I did so that <laughs> yes. maybe I can, can, and then I can, you know, trying to get to uh, say, it, it's not necessarily squirreling for a way out of it, but. Yes. Light. Well, mm-hmm. and also that line is important in terms of the code too, because. <laughs> She says, it is something of my negligence, nothing of my purpose. Mm -hmm. And that would be Mm -hmm. usually enough to stop a duel from happening. So if someone, if you offended someone and they were like, excuse me, and you're like, oh no, that's not what I meant. It could literally stop a duel from happening. Right. I think you're right. I think the language is very much like, um, please, please tell me, please tell me. (laughs) (laughs) And also she's saying it's, it's, it's a mistake I made. And if it's a mistake I made, the duel doesn't need to happen mm-hmm. because it was never a purposeful injury. Mm-hmm. So it's like both, it's really, it's like both things are happening simultaneously. And so then it seems like Toby's had enough of Viola's questions. Well, and, I, I think, uh, what you're saying, he, he didn't, it's what Shao was saying. He didn't anticipate any of this. No, it's, I think you're right. I think you're fine usually i just come up and yell and, and, bluster. <laughs> and they melt in front of me but instead he's got viola saying with excruciating politeness you are full of shit buddy <laughs> viola would have made a good liar uh, okay so then uh he does a little tag team with fabian here and Fabian, um, the, the, always a, a little bit more. I just mm-hmm. personal uh, thing, but little, when the second guy that says, "Yeah, he's gonna, she's gonna beat your ass," I mean, <laughs> yeah. that is even more terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because Fabian doesn't really have any of Toby's bluster, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Fabian is kind of more on a on a same social fitting as Viola Cesario. And so we can forgive Viola Cesario for thinking maybe she can trust Fabian a little more than Toby. (laughs) There's definitely like a good cop, bad cop thing happening here, Mm -hmm. right? Toby comes in with the bluster and the, and the blood and the fight. 
And then Fabian's here like, yeah, he's a pretty scary guy. I'll I'll try to talk to yeah. him for you. Well, and right? the setup, man. Will you read, uh, Cha, will you read that line for us from Fabian? Nothing of that wonderful promise. Uh, Viola sure. says, I beseech you, what manner of man is he? Nothing of that wonderful promise to read him by his form, as you are like to find him in the proof of his valor. He is indeed, sir, the most skillful, bloody, and fatal opposite that you could possibly have found in any part of Illyria. Will you walk towards him? I will make your peace with him if I can. So Fabian is straight up lying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but with a different tactic, right? Yeah. His tactic yes. is different mm -hmm. than Tony. Yes. Same lie, different mm -hmm. tactic. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so then poor Viola is like, oh, thank you, Fabian. You'll hmm. make your peace with him. He's got to get in ensnared. It's, I think the good cop mm -hmm. was a great analogy mm -hmm. there. You know, they got to make sure that, that this thing happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, to, to be the, the sort of like dueling code bringer inner. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Thank Fabian you. Fabian is basically in that line when he says, I will make your peace with him if I can. Mm -hmm. He's proposing himself as Viola's second. Right. He's basically saying Toby <clears throat> is Aggie Cheeks. Mm -hmm. Right. Toby is, is speaking for Aggie Cheek in these like pre-dual conversations. I can be the one who speaks for you. Mm. And of course, you know, Cesario doesn't have a friend in the world in this right. in this kind of situation. So it's like, oh, thank God. Yes, please be my second. I need that. So we'll see when the duel, quote unquote, happens <laughs> that Fabian is acting as her, his, their second. Toby is acting as Aggie Cheek's second. And as uh, can I ask, just uh, before we move, move on to the next bit, uh, staging wise for you guys with this, who gives in to the temptation to let Andrew be hearing all of this on stage, oh, like actively? No, I didn't you, do no that. One, no, no, one? no, because I felt like if Andrew could hear it, then he wouldn't. He would know. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, not hearing it, but visual, uh, visible. Oh, um, so when you've got yeah. the thing being when you've got uh, he's the fiercest, yeah, killed, and then we have him waiting. I think for me, then in that case, Viola Cesario would have to be doing an awful lot of strutting mm. instead of begging and pleading for her life. Yeah, she could be like pacing, and then the pacing <laughs> could be read as you know, metal by it Aggie could, Cheek. but I think if she's too. If she looks too scared and Aggie Cheek sees it, I think it messes with the he said, she said of this moment. Mm. Yeah, I, and I think there's something about building up the dramatic tension of not allowing either one of them to see each other mm -hmm. until the actual moment of the duel. Okay. That, that would have been against the And And so that to yeah, yeah. So Toby has worked his magic of creating this boogeyman in both of their you know it's the monster in the closet so that they're both expecting terror and there's even there can even be a moment when they come together of you're 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 the scary one right <laughs> yeah and they're kind of both clattering at that point, right exactly you know, like, exactly <laughs> yeah because that duel is very much about toby and fabian almost making them fight instead like right? puppets yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 like there's a certain yeah a certain marionetting quality to it and yeah. so i think that if they have if they've seen each other beforehand you lose some of that i think i i think i even had my aggie cheek come on stage backwards 
so that he didn't see Viola until the last minute. Mm. And then that mm. moment of recognition of, oh, wait, you're, you don't look so scary. A really great, I, I taught a class about this, this duel for my fellow dramaturgs at Columbia. And one of my like, sort of visuals, there's this great portrait uh, by Francis Wheatley of a production in the 1700s. And if you look it up, it's Francis Wheatley, Twelfth Night Duel. Google it. It's, <laughs> it's exactly that image, right? It's like mm-hmm. the two of them are center and they're sort of like leaning away from each other. <laughs> and Toby and Fabian are on either side sort of pushing them in. And it's, yeah. it's just like a beautiful 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 image of this moment <laughs> awesome okay so now we've got uh, toby here being a, a hype man for viola cesario why man he's a very devil <laughs> and he's uh he, again lying that that uh, viola cesario had fought with him and that's enough for Aggie cheek to go pox on it i'll not meddle with him um he scared him a little too too hard <laughs> And then he's going on about how he will not be pacified. Fabian can scarce hold him yonder, which I always like had Fabian just like holding on to Cesario so that he's not running off the stage in the opposite direction. (laughs) There are so many fun ways to stage this scene. And I noticed that uh, Aguchi, he brings up the the pox and the plague here as being things that he's going to avoid Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so he's got some sense of self-preservation unlike uh, some people in our current timeline he also says here which I love and I thought he had been valiant and so cunning in fence I'd have seen him damned ere I'd have challenged him Mm -hmm. which you know it just points out like Aguchik didn't actually care about his honor right that was never yeah. It's like if he had known that he was a good fencer, I wouldn't have challenged him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really just want him to back down and stop flirting with Olivia. That's all I want. I don't actually want to yeah. fight him. <laughs> <laughs> then he he offers to give his horse in compensation. Just forget about the whole thing. I'll, I'll give him my horse. And this is, uh, you know, Toby does some fairly reprehensible things, but to me, this is the one that's that's the worst where he keeps the horse um (laughs) mary i'll ride your horse as well as i ride you oh toby 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 (laughs) um then he says to fabian i have his horse to take up the quarrel i have persuaded him the youth's a devil and this stuff just a a gift to an actor you know this is one of those Mm. scenes it's just you know if you've got your your Toby and your Fabian on it as they go from camp to camp and are kind of meeting and what did you get? Here's what I got. <laughs> Stuff's just <laughs> lovely to play. It's just candy for the audience. To note here, dual wise, you know, to really pay attention to who these asides are to, mm-hmm. right? In the sense that what what really should be happening in the duel is is yes, Fabian and Toby sort of come to the center and talk, but then they should go back to their own camp, and that's not mm-hmm. what's happening. Right? Mm. They're coming to the center and talking, and then Toby's going to Viola and Fabian. (laughs) They're crossing each other. When really what should be happening is the seconds come to the center or, you know, to a ground talk and then bring it back to their own principles. They're they're like, it's a web. They're doing a whole crazy (laughs) back and forth. You know, I 
it just makes me kind of wish that if we're doing Twelfth Night for an audience who doesn't have the benefit of having their very own Cha Ramos on tap, <laughs> that there could be a little explanation about the dueling code and maybe some dueling, what's the word, I guess, um, exposition, performance. I would love a, a version of like the movie Clue. Where you're like, this is how it should have happened. And you show <laughs> a duel that works. And then right. like, this is how it really happened. Yes. <laughs> to, to any of you high school, college, junior high instructors uh, teaching this play, I cannot recommend enough having a segment where you talk about the dueling code because your students are just going to be on the floor laughing once they understand that, they will get these jokes. And my gosh, Cha, thank you so much. So, um, <laughs> so glad it can be helpful. Oh, boy, no kidding. And I, I love Toby's, like he never gives an inch. Stand here, make a good show, aunt. This shall end without the perdition of souls. Again, you know, he's bringing... <laughs> <laughs> reminding people they're all gonna die probably in this duel and what well, I, I, think want... he, I think he's giving him a little butt tap there it's like yeah. it's gonna be okay you know this is his little spaniel you know it just mm -hmm. you can see him getting overheated you mm -hmm. know and uh all right it's not gonna it's gonna end without the perdition of souls you know hmm. we're not gonna all go to hell here maybe <laughs> maybe probably yeah and I, like what I'm wondering is, what do you folks think Toby's plan is here? Is he expecting there to be a duel? Is he expecting to stop a duel? Or is he just going to let it go forward and hope that they all get arrested? I mean, what is <laughs> I mean, my guess here, or sort of how I think I would stage it, because again, I've, I've actually never worked on this play, which is such a sad truth of my <laughs> history as a theater maker uh but i think one of the interesting things that toby is doing here is to both sides he's saying i he won't he's not going to hurt you i promise he's not going to he said he swears he will not hurt you he protests he will not hurt you mm -hmm. i think what toby actually wants to see is the show is he wants to see the he's moment born. Where they come together and how hilarious it's going to be to watch them just like pull out their swords and like maybe try to fight. Like, I don't think he actually wants anyone to get hurt or arrested uh -huh. or, but he wants that moment that we all want now as the audience. Like, yeah. We're all team Toby at this point because we right. want to see these yes. people mm -hmm. encounter each other. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what he's looking for is the comedy. He's looking for a show. I wonder too, is he first of all, kind of looking for a way, like seeing the end of his relationship with Aggie Cheek, as Aggie Cheek is running out of money, and obviously not going to get to marry Olivia. And he's clearly not wild about the idea of Viola Cesario marrying Olivia. I wonder if partly he's looking for a way to get them both kind of out of court without it being his fault this is kind of a way that they can sort of eliminate each other from the running because clearly Olivia is not going to be impressed by this, but I think you're absolutely right. Cha. He's bored. Uh, he wants a show. Yeah. Hmm. This will be, be funny if nothing else. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and I think it's, I think it's telling, he says he cannot by the duello avoid this one bout, one bout with you. He cannot avoid this now that we've entered into these dual negotiations, Mm. but it'll be one bout and he promises he's not going to hurt you. Right? Like Mm -hmm. at this point, Toby just wants to see it happen. So if anything he can say to get them to face off, he's going to do, but it's, it's really just that it's let's, I want to watch them face off. And then here we are, the two combatants enter, and Aguicheek is praying to God that Viola doesn't hurt him. And Viola says, I do assure you, tis against my will. So, <laughs> again, by the code at that point, they could have just stopped, right? Yes, except that <laughs> what, what it would have taken for them to stop is for their seconds to actually say the truth, right? If if Fabian had gone to Cesario mm. and Toby had gone to Aguicheek and said, listen, he doesn't actually want to fight. Are you satisfied? They both would have cheered yes. Yes. <laughs> because that didn't happen. Yeah. Now they're facing off. And, you know, her line to him could be seen as like, listen, I didn't want to hurt you, buddy, but you challenged me, right? Like Aguicheek mm. could read it as bravado. And what Viola means is, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. <laughs> okay. And then enter Antonio, everybody's oh, favorite sexy this pirate. Is, yeah. One of the yeah. great, uh, you know, Errol Flynn dashing in, you know, the Robin Hood on the, mm-hmm. you know, swinging up to the tree. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's all that. It's it, he's swashing all the buckles. He's, all the buckles are swashed. Yes, <laughs> nice. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, man. Great juxtaposition because you can imagine, right? If you visualize it, Aguicheek and Cesario just tentatively holding right in front of them. <laughs> yeah, and Antonio comes in like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Really? Yeah, <laughs> taking over the scene. That's exactly how. how mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I completely agree with that staging. And yeah. you know, we're, we've got a great thing here. With he, Antonio kind of speaking in a verse here. You know, mm-hmm. we've got um, he's coming in. The pentameter's dead on, and it's a straight up gorgeous and just just lovely delivered uh, uh elizabethan uh challenge right it's mm-hmm. just uh it's it's the, it's the very picture of it you know yeah, in like that full moment. of full of valor full of honor mm-hmm. yeah like full of you know truth and and genuineness that we have heretofore not seen <laughs> no, not <laughs> even a little yeah and so, Cha, what he says here, put up your sword. If this young gentleman have done offense, I take the fault on me. If you offend him, I for him defy you. Yeah. Is that a formal mm. challenge? So basically what he's saying here, which which I love and think would absolutely have been an option, is is I, I would like to fight for this gentleman, right? Mm-hmm. I put myself in his place. And because Antonio doesn't know the nature of the challenge, he's sort of covering all his bases. So he's mm. saying, if if he's done offense, I take the blame. If you have offended him, I will fight you. Mm. So so he's basically oh. covering all bases because he doesn't know who challenged who. <laughs> I see. <laughs> but he's saying, yeah. whoever offended anyone else, I will take this young man's place. Mm. Like he's just immediately taking you know who he believes to be sebastian's Mm -hmm. and then poor toby all of a sudden has (laughs) has a moment of real panic (laughs) you want to give us i 
think it's I, I you know it's now we got a ball game. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, I I didn't realize we were gonna actually be having this. You know. <laughs> I, I didn't realize we were really gonna do. Let's do this thing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you, sir, why? What are you? And again, the pentameter from Antonio. One, mm -hmm. sir, that for his love dares yet do more. Right? Every line that you have heard him brag to you, he will. Bam! Just perfect. Mm -hmm. The very form of it. And then Toby. Yeah, all right. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> I am for you. I got nothing else going on today but these two guys. <laughs> if you be an undertaker... <laughs> Here I am, buddy. It's a better party. It is. It, <laughs> it is. And yet I don't know, like, if Toby really, really wanted to fight here. Well, that's the tragedy of all you of know? Us, us, you know, gregarious uh, bearded marvels <laughs> uh, is that we just think we're just athletic Adonises. <laughs> And then uh, you know you you get uh, you get two moves uh, into the the duello there, and he touched me, and now I'm gonna go limp to Mariah and, and whine about this guy, and then anyone that tries to help me, I'm gonna snap at and be some food and drink. But see, I also I and maybe it's just because I I have a soft spot for you know large bearded men of of who think they are Adonis's um <laughs> same <laughs> but I I do I think that Toby in his youth was a force to be reckoned with yes and that this is sort of like this is muscle memory yeah yeah, yeah you yeah. know what I mean like he's like oh yeah okay I know how to do this mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's just not prepared for the skill with which <laughs> Antonio oh. knows how to do this and yet I, I think about Toby sitting there. I mean, he has worked so hard to get to this point mm. where he's going to get to watch Aggie Cheek and Viola shake swords at each other because they're so terrified. And this guy comes in and ruins his whole show. <laughs> and it's it's one of the few places where you see Toby really being thwarted. But um, as you have all pointed out toby's not one to back down from a fight at no point in here does he go oh but this would be illegal no um <laughs> fabian who has more sense than toby which i guess would not be too difficult says hey the cops are coming and uh yeah that wonderful stage direction that every director then gets to contend with enter officers <laughs> Who the hell are those guys? Well, and this how think, many? This, <laughs> well, you need at least two. <laughs> yeah, you need at least two. I think this speaks to what Rachel was saying earlier: is like, did did potentially Toby and Fabian tell the officers that a duel would be happening? So, like, you could have Fabian say this line mm. as like, Toby, the officers that we called are here mm. now. Oh, right? because they were trying to set them up because a duel is illegal in this time, right? So, right. Are they, were they trying to set them up all along? If not, why? I mean, the officers Antonio. Were for Antonio. Yeah. Um, but that's a lot but, of fun, though. But there could be fun in that. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Lot, lots of room in there. And you're right. We don't know how many officers there are. But there are two officers with lines. So you can't like cast like against two. I like to, you? you know, the yeah. more officers, the cooler Antonio is. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> Uh, half dozen minimum. 
<laughs> but you know, then that's that many more actors you got to make sure well, for rehearsal on time. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, yeah, Cheerio and Valentine doing this whole time. That's so exactly what rather, we did. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. exactly. But the mm-hmm. funny part was that our Cheerio and our Valentine were both these very small women. So part of the comedy became these these two little tiny women trying to convince. Like there was no way they could overpower Antonio, so they had mm-hmm. to sort of like coax antonio and it was you know antonio being willing to go with them mm-hmm. like that was the depth his the depth of his love for sebastian is so great that he's not going yeah, to yeah it doesn't matter he's not going to try to fight his way out of this yeah. so but there was a lot of very they they, they had some very cute little like ah, no i'm not gonna ah, no you, yeah. you like <laughs> they had some cute little interplay and then there's aggie cheeks comment that um that sounds um actually rather like a sexual invitation or Aggie Cheek is talking about his horse and he says to Viola Cesario after Viola says praise sir put your sword up if you please and Aggie Cheek says marry will I sir and for that I promised you I'll be as good as my word he will bear you easily and reigns well what the hell (laughs) (laughs) well I think what's what I think where to me where the comedy of this moment is is Andrew's Sir Andrew's talking about the horse that he promised, but of course right. Cesario was never given that promise because Toby right. just took the horse. So he's talking about a horse, but Viola has just said, "Put up your sword." Mm-hmm. So she's hearing it as, "Your sword will bear me easily," <laughs> which is a hundred percent a dick joke. So it's just yes. again, it's like the layers of. It's just great. I also, it's also important here, right? Is that. To me, we've seen the officers come in. Fabian's mm-hmm. line is not an aside just to Toby. It's out mm-hmm. loud, which mm-hmm. means everyone has heard it, which means Viola as Cesario is still saying, put up your sword. This duel is happening, mm-hmm. which is the honorable thing to do, mm-hmm. right? To not mm-hmm. say there are officers coming. Great. I'm out of the duel. So it's to me, that's a really important line because even in the midst of this, she's committed to this honorable duel and she's going to see it through. I misinterpreted that. I thought she was telling him to put it away. No, put your sword up if you please. Got it. That makes a lot more sense. And then for Aguecheek to say, Mary, will I, sir? So why is Aguecheek agreeing to put up his sword? So I think he's not. So the way I would read this Viola says, pray, sir, put your sword up if you please. And he says, marry, will I, sir? Like, I, w- I would, but I still have that horse. Ah. I think that's the tone of the line. Okay. That's my read of it, which is just like, marry, will I, sir? Sure, sure, sure. I'll do, I'll put up my sword in a second. But and for that, I promised you, I'll be as good as my word. He'll bear you easily. He reigns well. Like, you want the horse? Got it. Okay. 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 Or, or, or the the transition, you know, that you're talking about with the uh, the more modern idea of putting something up, works there for Aguecheek where it didn't for you know Viola. It could be you know however you're gonna uh, play that. Her put your sword up. Obviously, she's got the sword. She's gesturing. Put it up. And if he's taking your more modern Rachel's you know thing, it, that could work too. You know. Yeah. You can, get, you can get them both in there. You know. He sees it but as I'm, sort of way. She sees it as 
But yeah, I, yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. wanting to know what it meant, like really what right. it meant, you know. <laughs> Which dick is, jokes. That's what it meant. It, 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 well, it is a dick joke, obviously. But um, I'm also kind of wondering, like, if they had their swords pointed at each other, would putting your sword up mean that you had, like, like you were taking it out of guard, taking it out of potentially. I mean, because the, the troubling thing here is Mary, Will Iser, and the and makes it troubling, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not an opposition thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? That's true. Yeah. So, and who the hell knows if he's in the right? Because, like, if words, you know, so. <laughs> if Aggie Cheek has Viola have their swords pointed at each other, and the cops are coming, yeah, the mm. sensible thing might be to lift them, but um. Well, and that's the thing. If they've maintained their guard. So interestingly, because we're talking about, you know, Toby sort of being like, yeah, let's fight. And then the officers come in. So Toby doesn't, they don't get a chance to even exchange a single blow in this moment. It's just four right. people with their swords out, right? Right. Now, now we have four people with their swords out. Yeah. Yes. So if Cesario and Aguchik are maintaining their guard or are maintaining, you know, however they're set up for the duel, then yeah, I do think put your swords up is take them out of that guard okay if aguchik has dropped his which again this is a this is a choice right yes if when the officers arrive aguchik drops his sword then viola saying put your sword up man right yeah. is get back yeah. in the game yeah i think either one actually really does work it's like mm -hmm. if you're holding what do you get finger, great things from them yeah I mean, if 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 Vilas say, uh, I know the cops are here. Then fuck fuck the cops. We're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's great. Could could be a lot of things there. That's great. That's good stuff. The four people with their swords out. I wanted to mention, like, one of the things that I find fascinating is people are just wearing swords on their hips, right? Yeah. yeah. There's some conversation among like sword people, my people, my sword people, around would Cesario as a page have a sword on his hip as, at all times or not? Mm -hmm. And different people do it differently. Mm -hmm. I think if he's a if he's like a a true sort of Turkish eunuch, he would. Yes. yes. Um, he would have a sword at his hip at all times. But usually someone of his social standing wouldn't. Which means Toby would have had to hand him a sword, or Fabian would have had to hand him a sword. But importantly, Toby always has a sword at his hip. Yes. Always. I'll tell you how I solved that. Um, good or not. But in the beginning, um, Valentine, uh, the Duke has bestowed much favors upon you, Cesario. A gift of a sword. And she's got it the whole time. Love it. Yeah. Love that. Also, yeah. I, love see, I love seeing Viola str strut around during all this with the sword, you know? Yeah, that's sexy. Uh, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. And uh, all you really have to do to make an actor's day is give them a wooden sword and a cape. Yeah, and that's, that's just, yeah. they're fine. They're happy. They'll do anything for you. <laughs> also, truly, if you are going to give your actors swords what of any kind that they have at their hips at all times please give them to them early in the process oh god yes <laughs> also yeah can i just ask Cha? can, can you just just for, firmly cement this in the in the in the commandments of the pantheon of the awesomeness of what we should or shan't do um do we ever 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 ever, 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 ever take anything with any kind of a real edge to it or that was once even anything with a real edge to it 
even though we promise to put things on it or quote dole it down or any of these do we ever 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 ever, ever let anyone unless, ever have any of those unless you literally have a swordsmith dull an edge for you to be appropriate for the stage because some swordsmiths will do that for you it costs money you cannot ever 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 have an edged weapon on stage and then somebody say what if they don't draw it no never never okay okay never, all right uh, not speaking from you. experience but gang <laughs> those of you that are producers and directors listen to that Literally that's going to save you a lot of that's 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 yeah i i i had an actor who in a production of romeo and juliet got stabbed yeah Uh, well that's the one that's the that's the it wasn't my production of romeo and juliet thank goodness but But, i mean um, that's a lot a lot of flurrying about in that one yeah yeah and even even a wooden sword people can hurt themselves with and it really makes me wonder in the original staging of these, would they have used real swords? I know the answer to that question. So interestingly, <laughs> we don't have anything for for sort of Shakespeare, but we do have Henslow's diary. And in Henslow's diary for his stage company, in the, the list of properties, there is 17 foils. Um, so foils would have been actual fencing foils. Mm-hmm. So they would have been dull because they're used for sport fencing. They would have been very thin blades, but they would have been metal. Also, most actors of this time are trained in fencing. Just part of the training. It's sure. movement. It's like the way most actors take a movement class or a dance class. Most actors in Elizabethan England would have been at least a little bit trained. Some of them are master fencers. Right, I think Burbage was like a pretty big deal as a fencer, right? So, big dude, beard, just saying. Okay, yes. so, you, so you would have been using a metal implement, but it would be dull, and the actors would know how to use it, which is why I sort of make the point that first of all, I think any actor who's ever going to use do any kind of stage combat should have some kind of stage combat training. But also, even if you're just going to have wooden swords and they're going to be wearing them at their hip even if they never use them in a fight having some understanding of what these weapons do or what they would do if they were real how you would wear it at your hip what it would mean to rest your left hand versus your right hand on it what does it mean tell us tell us tell us so if you think about like (laughs) think about it logically and this is something i love to do with actors in shows where they are going to wear a blade at their hip the whole show is have them just like walk around the space, like viewpoints style, have chairs and things that they can try to sit in and just get used to what it feels like to sit with a blade, right? It's a whole, there's things that it's like, we wear a watch, people wear blades, like they know how to sit with them. So just kind of have them feel it out and then do things like, when you place your left hand on the guard of the sword at your hip, it's a very casual thing, but your hand's on the sword. So how that affects the people who are around you They're like, oh, that that person's hand is on their sword. Now, if you were to rest your right hand, your dominant hand, on the hilt of the weapon on your left hip, now you're ready to fight really quickly. So you have, you know, this is what I do anyway. I'll have the actors walk around the space and just kind of do that when they feel like it and respond to each other. So if someone casually places their right hand onto the hilt of their blade, you can see actors who are paying attention, who have now been told to pay attention, sort of slow down and keep eyes on that person. 
because it's a real threat. It's a real danger that's always there. So just those little like physical sort of kinesthetic responses to each other can have huge implications on stage and the audience will feel them. But when you don't do work like that or you don't think about the blade as an actual thing, even if it is a, a wooden dowel, right? <laughs> you don't, you'll have actors just like willy-nilly swinging them around yeah. or like, you know, throwing hands over them. <laughs> Whereas placing your right hand on that even just on like the top of the hilt, right? Just on the pommel, not even grabbing the grip, just mm -hmm. resting. Like you're ready to go. And it means something. And the other, the other thing I'll often have them do is just like ever so slightly pull it out, just start mm. to pull the blade out. And literally the room will stop walking. Everyone in the room just stops walking. And it's the coolest thing to watch <laughs> because you're like, ah, you get it now. You get the threat. Nice, nice. And how wonderful too if the audience has that consciousness and it creates so much more immersion because the the actors are all responding to this perceived threat mm -hmm. and then this lets the audience know oh shit's about to go down yep and how often have we watched a production of whatever and we're like wait what's happening now wait i didn't catch oh what's what? There's a fight? What the hell? What's going on? <laughs> you know, it's like, and nothing can make a play more boring than feeling like everybody else is in on a story or a joke that you're not getting. Like, that's when I instantly want to leave. But to have that kind of uh, language, body language, from the very beginning, from the very first scene in Orsino's court, really fun to be able to watch that tension build. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, Cha. Okay. And I, I want to repeat again, even wooden swords can hurt people. A hundred percent. And if you're, you know, a good actor, good director, you should act like they can hurt you. Yes. Because they're swords. So act yes. like it can hurt you. Yes. Very wise. Very, very wise. My two of my son's fence and a blunt, you know, a blunted foil or a blunted mm. saber can really hurt. I mean, yeah. they all come yeah. home from tournaments black and blue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the the aggression between Antonio and Toby uh, melts away when the cops show up. Mm. And Aggie Cheek and Viola Cesario have that awkward exchange about the horse or the sword or the penis, whatever the heck they're talking about there. <laughs> First officer, this is the man, do thy office. And then the second officer says, Antonio, I arrest thee at the suit of Count Orsino. Count Orsino's long arm of the law over here. And Antonio tries to bluff his way out of it. Oh, you do mistake me, sir. <laughs> I am not the droid you're looking for. And he's like, no, no, dude, I, I recognize you. Um, just because you changed your hat doesn't mean that I don't know who you are. And so Antonio gives up pretty quickly. I must obey. Turns to Viola, who he thinks is Sebastian, and says, uh, can I have my money now? And there's a very practical reason why he needed money, because if you went to prison, you needed money. Uh, you had to pay for your food. It's helpful to bribe the guards to keep them from beating you. If you wanted clean water as opposed to muddy water, it really 
you know, then as now, having money in prison can be a big help. And Viola is like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so Antonio is understandably distressed. Viola well, offers. And the, the thing here, though, you know, yeah. also under all that is the um, concern for Sebastian's safety. You know, I must obey um, uh, as opposed to, you know, I, I obviously he's a brigand and a, and a pirate and all that. But the, that first you do mistake me, sir, how much of that is, you know, so that he can stay for, uh, you know, Cesario. Mm -hmm. And as we get into um, the entreating of the uh, money, it's, it's you know, it comes across as um, he's, he's just so concerned with the, uh, even the kind of casual nature of having to ask that he spends most time, most of the time apologizing for the fact that he even has to ask it, you know? Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I always feel that he could take this whole room at all times, you know, probably mm -hmm. like he's not, I don't think he's in fear for his life or anything at this moment, but, but that, um, yeah, to, to calm the, uh, physical repercussive legal stakes of, of the scene possibly for Cesario, but also to protect Cesario mm. there, you know, Sebastian, just, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah. Sebastian. Right. And yeah. there's just so much love here. It's, it's so, yeah. it's such a beautiful change of tone from, you know, this hilarious dual like setup thing mm. to now this real moment of Antonio who loves Sebastian and, you know, depending on your production, what kind of love that is, but who mm. deeply loves Sebastian. Mm -hmm. Undeniable. And, mm -hmm. and here's Sebastian and just den denying him money that he lent him. Like, what is going on? And it's so heartbreaking and so... And Viola's so in earnest still, yeah. you know, attempting to understand. And so they can't quite get it. And, you know, and we move, once it gets to just the two of them, we move into verse here. You know, we move as you would between lovers or it, or between in, in an intimate moment or an impassioned moment or a spiritual moment or, or that kind of thing. And um, and they, they even finish each other's lines again, like as we've talked about before, is hold their, half my coffer, will you deny me now? You know, and uh, it's exactly right. It's just gorgeous. I have done for you. I know of none. I know of none. It's not that I, I hate you. I want to help you. <laughs> Even that she offers some of her own money. Right? Yeah, she's like, here, yeah. yeah. I can, yeah. You know, she just had a sword coming yeah. at her, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful. And that character. And then we get this these great, you know, and I, I know I'm kind of bla blazing around here, but that... I know of none, just some lovely, nor know I you by voice or any feature. I hate ingratitude more in a man than lying, vainness, babbling drunkenness, or any taint of vice whose strong corruption and habits are frail blood. Antonio finishes the line, oh, heavens themselves. Mm. And so you've got what wonderful meat there for all of the uh, people on stage guilty of that is she saying you know all, all your toby's possibly and <laughs> all of these kinds of things lying <laughs> vainness babbling drunkenness that's pretty much toby <laughs> and antonio getting into just rhapsodic language from this point oh so beautiful the big o's those huge vowels you know and you always have to earn those and they really just 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 bespeak that i mean I, he's he's got uh, two or three of them here and then Violet takes them up you know uh, mm -hmm. oh prove true uh, uh, and uh, giving us the crescendo here as we get to the end 
Well, let's see, Bridget, would you read Antonio's line, let me speak a little? Great. And it's just, that is one of those, if, I'm so sorry to interrupt again, but the, uh, that is just one of those, the second I hear anyone even say that phrase, mm -hmm. I always, I know what's common, man, right, with Antonio, even in life. If I hear someone say something like that, let me speak, I, I mean, it's like, to be or not to what, you know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, you're in that moment. And that let me speak a little when Antonio's about to mm -hmm. uh, just, yeah, it's, it's such a setup. I got, I have chills right now. I better do it right then. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> and having been given that introduction. Sorry. I'm sorry. Didn't mean it like that. <laughs> Let me speak a little. <laughs> All right. Let me speak a little. This youth that you see here, I snatched one half out of the jaws of death relieved him with such sanctity of love and to his image, which methought did promise most venerable worth, did I devotion. What's that to us? The time goes by. Away. But, oh, how vile an idol proves this god. Thou hast, Sebastian, done good feature shame. In nature there's no blemish but the mind. None can be called deformed but the unkind. Virtue is beauty, but the beauteous evil are empty trunks or flourished by the devil. Poor Antonio. And just lead me on. Pretty is as pretty does. Well done. You know, he, he's sitting there going, man, I was taken in by a pretty face. I can't believe what a fool I was. And his his heartbreak there is. Well, you know, they, they do. Uh, I think I mentioned this once before but the uh rumor is always that uh this was the role antonio uh, was the role that shakespeare played that he wrote for himself mm. uh, and there's apparently one in most of his plays mm -hmm. but i love it just the you know he's got this and this if you're if you're the writer director the partial owner of the theater company <laughs> i would i would say okay i want i'm gonna get a sword fight let me get the love that's a good deal and something really important that happens in that those last lines by Antonio is that he says Sebastian's name. Yes. And this is the first time Viola has heard anybody say Sebastian's yeah. name. Um, he thinks his words do from such passion fly. Even she is impressed by Antonio's words and realizes that he's talking about Sebastian and that maybe Antonio is not as crazy as he seems and that maybe she has some hope to see her brother again. She goes off, lots to think about, poor mm. Viola. And then we get back to Toby. We have, we have the little button. We have the big ba -ba, ba -ba, ba -ba, the thunder, the lightning. No. Uh, and now... And it interests me that they don't, that the scene doesn't just end with Viola's line there mm -hmm. but we have to get a little bit more of toby and fabian and Aggie cheek um because we know that there's more fighting we don't get to see the fighting but shakespeare has to set it up here so that later when there's evidence of a fight we know okay uh toby and fabian and Aggie cheek had not learned their lesson <laughs> 
and well, there and, and a couple of other things here too you know there's a classic moment for for the old interval the mm -hmm. old intermesh and it it's musically satisfying and it almost if we you know this isn't uh Agincourt, you know, it's not Christmas mm -hmm. Day, Antonio and, and Violet. It's got a romantic, tragic moment to it. It's got some bravado and some some daring due to it, but it's um it's you know, we didn't just take the castle here, you know. But um it's a huge, huge, huge. And then if we have that light uh, decrescendo moment, a slight bit of comedy, I'm I'm saying probably sending us to the intermission. But and then now you'll see as he sets up for the next scene, completely different it's a completely different tone we're no longer in the same thread of events here mm -hmm. in the same thread of people uh it's, it's it's a different moment you know so for me i like to have that if it was just you know leave me on and then sebastian and runs off and then uh, but that decrescendo that little comment from the mm -hmm. from the the fools there mm -hmm. you know, it's uh it seats it i think one of the things that interests me about this scene structurally is that one of the theoretical rules about defining a scene is that people change through it, that there something happens. And one of the amazing things about Seinfeld, if uh, for those of you that are old enough to have watched Seinfeld, is that he said that it was a TV show about nothing, that nobody would ever learn anything in any episode. And here we have this incredible scene that goes on and on and on, and nobody has learned anything, nobody has changed, with the exception of Viola finding out that Sebastian might be alive. But nothing has been resolved, uh, nobody has become wiser really as a result of all this um if anything things are even more chaotic and there's even more misunderstanding uh, going into this next scene we have festi encountering sebastian for the first time not knowing that it's sebastian so that's i i always find that exchange pretty hilarious a little bit of toby and olivia in there um, give it a listen and enjoy <laughs> 